0: This episode of the podcast is sponsored by Channel View Estates, a Michael Wolfman concept. Tanner, good to see you, buddy. Great to see you, Matt. Thank you. As you can see, I'm in my new spot of the room. So yeah, I got I got uh, ousted from the little apartment. It's not really an apartment, but at my uh, mother-in-law's place, the house is sectioned because she rents it part of it out. And the part that, luckily for us, the tenant left right before we got here for the summer. So we kind of have our own apartment, but uh, my daughter just fell asleep. So she's she's got the, the apartment. She pretty- booted you. Yeah, I was booted. And then, um, so now I'm over here, I just popped about half a Claritin, because I'm very allergic to cats. And they're, as I was telling you moments ago, they're seeking me out because of my my ambivalence towards them. I think cats cats love the uh, hard to get game, the Tom and Jerry game, if you will. Um, so I think I need to be more overtly warm to them. So they'll ironically leave me the F alone.
1: Well, this is great for podcasts, but there is a lovely painting
0: behind you in this new space. Oh, let's so- describe it. Take my word. Oh, yeah, it is pretty. It's like old school looking, for lack of a better term. And uh, it is just flowers. Yeah, it's nice. There's a good ambiance in here. There's, um, yeah, it's good ambiance in here, I'll say. It's nice, the main light coming in behind you. Thank you. Well, it's kind of honestly, yeah, the good thing we're not doing video. Because, yeah, it's, well, we are doing video and we can see it, but the people won't. But it's, I feel pretty blown out back here. But speaking of decor, Tanner, um, behind you is the one iconic film still from the movie and book. We were talking to Inherent Vice and I, I love it. It's, it's true. Such- I, I have
1: a, yes, I have a, I believe I was given a lobby book when I saw Inherent Vice on a blown up 70 millimeter print at the Cinerama dome on release. They, they do that. Sometimes they do that with the Tarantino movies, like hateful eight. I know had a lobby book. And I ripped out the still of the, um, I guess it's not even a still, but it's a photo in the movie of the Last Supper-like photo of Koi Harlegan uh, taking a slice of pizza while among the uh, the surf rock group, the Boards. Um, <laughs> so Owen Wilson's up on my wall. It feels a little childish to have an image thumbtacked to my wall, but on that note, Matt, upon your recent move, you gifted me with a real deal framed Inherent Vice poster. So that, I did. that's sitting on the floor beneath my uh, jerry-rigged and hair advice
0: artwork. So I'm gonna have to replace it with that. Well, can you call something a gift when it I owned it first and then passed it foisted it onto you, you on my way out? Foisted it upon me. <laughs> <laughs> and if you notice, the corner has a wood glue on it because I was playing uh, indoor soccer with this really like this fluffy ball. Um, that became maybe the most important thing in my life for a period of time during the quarantine where I was just trying to chip the ball into this little basket of toys for hours on end, but I got a little too zealous cause I got pretty good at it. And I was just, I was doing this thing where it was like, I have to kick it hard off the wall and then off the bounce, try to just scoop it in. And I just nailed the poster once and it just <laughs> it just fell to the ground, uh, and broke immediately. But then Corey glued it back together. But well, well listen, you know, uh, eggs break chocolate
1: melts (laughs) glass shatters the glass of the poster maybe it wasn't the glass but that was you know the inherent vice of the frame poster the inherent vice of owning a poster
0: yeah really sure that's what that means but i think yeah that part's a little it's funny because it's like it is very on the nose but still there's an air of mystery about it confusing yeah which is i think actually a good metaphor for this work pretty on the nose at times but there's still a great air of mystery and intrigue and you quite it's kind of hard to piece together i love it it is a perfect <laughs> metaphor real
1: quick while we're on it just gonna throw yeah. this out i didn't realize till yesterday that that poster this poster inherent vice is the one with shasta fe have um legs up in the air mm-hmm. uh forms a v never realized that
0: oh really yeah um inherent I, vice I, I, the novel v, v The letter V is pervading through Pinchon's work and consciousness. Maybe he. The V2 (laughs) rocket. (laughs) Oh yes. In uh, gravity's rainbow, which I've not read. You've read it though. Correct. I have read it. Oh, it took me like a year. God, it had to be so dense. I mean, V we've talked, we both read V I ordered V weeks into my child's birth. There's actually a photo of me reading V with Florence asleep on my chest. And I'm wearing a Seattle Sonics, like, like, uh, what would it be velvet? No, corduroy hat. And I remember I looked very, I'm like, this is I look look. pretty cool. In the- yeah. I was like, I look yeah, pretty cool in off. this. Um, if I were to die in the next couple of weeks, if you could have this photo instead of like a headshot, be my, be my, uh, open casket photo, that'd be great. Got it. Got it. But yeah, that was, we'll that we'll was like that two years ago.
1: Yes, yeah. Yeah. I know. that's crazy. Yeah. I definitely read V in quarantine as well early in my, like had time to force myself to read it where I was just like, If you read 50 pages a day, eventually you'll finish it
0: was way harder than I expected. It's so hard. I mean, the thing about that book is like, there's so many tough slogs of it. And then there's random moments that are awesome and like beautiful and haunting that like keep you going. But then it's like, ultimately, I felt like it made sense that the work earned him like a MacArthur genius grant, which I think he used to write Gravity's Rainbow. Um, Is that correct? Our pinch on expert? I actually don't think it is. I could be wrong. Hold on. Okay, I read that, but I believe I read it on Wikipedia. And as we know, I've what was it? I recently caught something. Oh, I was watching um election, and Great I caught it. Yeah, I caught a plot point that was very small, but it was it was just wrong in the Wikipedia summary after. And I'm like, I've probably have been parroting little things that are incorrect for so right. long. No, so I think he, he did win a MacArthur, but not until the late 80s. So um,
1: okay. just before he finished up Vineland, which took him fucking 17 years after Gravity's
0: Rainbow. Wow. Okay. Well, what, what work did he then produce? Was it Against the Day or was it Mason and Dixon? No, no. uh, Vineland came out two years after the MacArthur. Okay. So Vineland is his MacArthur piece, really? Yeah. Even though I think he had been, I mean, we'll, we'll get into that. I've got some stuff on that as well. Um, But yeah, we're talking Inherent Vice. We're talking Inherent Vice today. I have a copy of the book. Um, I actually own this copy, but this is a copy I got from the library because I didn't, I wanted to look at some passages again and reread parts of it and prep for this pod. And I didn't want to, I did not want to pay for another copy. Because I've paid for two copies of Inherent Vice in my day, a paperback, which was the first time I read it, which I lent to my best friend, Nick Ledger, uh, and then ultimately gifted it to him because, A, I didn't think I was going to get it back. B, I wanted to splurge on this hardcover uh, or a hardcover, not the one I'm holding up. But, yeah, I had a funny moment. I said I'd save it for the for when we were chatting because I was like. So there's a local library in Maine where we're staying for the summer, right? It's like, it's a really cool library and it's in small town Maine. So there aren't any like homeless people just in the, in the stalls, just grunting and moaning and doing all sorts of things. Like every time I want to go to the library when I was in LA, unfortunately, that was the case. Not to shame them. They have, I'm no, no library is super
1: important in that way here, unfortunately. yeah,
0: And it's, it's pretty up. Have you been to the Venice one? I don't know why you would. You don't live near Venice. No, I haven't.
1: I do. There is part of me that's like, eventually I'll make it to all the uh, LAPL library. I guess I don't know if that's an LAPL library. Um, It is. Okay. Well, yeah, I've been to like seven of them, you know?
0: Um, (laughs) Well, the Venice one is great. You know, is it right by the
1: canals? I think I walked by. Yes,
0: it is right by the canals. It's right off Abbott Kinney. And when I was living in Mar Vista, it was less than a mile and a half from my apartment. I think it was like just almost exactly a mile from my apartment. And I would ride my bike there. And then, and again, this there's no use speaking about this, but uh I've just seen it been it's now like I don't live in LA anymore, but the last time I was in that area was a couple months ago, and it's like now an encampment, like the entire parking lot had camps around. Yeah, it. that's that's what it was like that when I was there last two. Um major bummer. But what a nice thing to be able to ride your bike to. Yeah, it was great. The first I will say the first. I think that's part of the reason why Aaron Herent Vice hit me so hard because I first watched it and then read it when I was living in Mar Vista, which is two miles from Venice Beach. And like, obviously, it's not on the beach, but you can trick yourself into being like, I live at the beach. Like You, you know? pretty much did. I mean, when I would visit you, you get that sweet, sweet marine layer. You would. Ooh. Yeah. And I remember you'd always be like, the sunsets just hit different over here. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but anyway, so I it was just funny because yeah, I wanted to get a copy of Inherent Vice and uh to yeah, like I said, to review, and then I'm um, um, and I saw online that so to get a library card you have to have a main address because it's like paid by the taxpayers right, and I'm like, and but I saw they had a three month library membership for basically people exactly like me, uh, for twenty five dollars, and in my head I was like should I just buy Inherent Vice then? Cause it's like, that's less, it's gonna be less than 25 bucks. And I'm like, what, then I'm gonna own another copy of Inherent Vice. But I'm like, maybe I could, and I'll put it in either a little free library or I'll, or I'll send it to someone anonymously. And then I was like, no, just the library is nice. It's 25 bucks to like, you know, the library. Stop being so stingy essentially. So I go in there, but then I'm like, at the last second I'm like, no, I don't want to pay for a library membership. I just want one book, right? So I go, I spend my time perusing. I'm actually texting you while I'm in there because you were doing me a huge favor. Tanner recently dropped off a money order to my employer to help me get my teaching credential in California because the LAUSD, they basically told me if I sent it via snail mail, would get lost immediately, which is the best representation of that organization I could give you. Well, I tell you what, real quick, it was a pleasure, Matt. And also, (laughs) you know, the LAUSD building in downtown LA, a bureaucratic nightmare and kind of golden fangy. Huge. It is velvet. actually. That's a good connection to make because I didn't didn't the guy you had to meet with wasn't he on the fifteenth floor? He was on the what? There are fifteen floors. I mean, I know it's like the second biggest school district
1: in the country, but yeah, not only he on the fifteenth floor, there's like a courtyard in the middle of the fifteenth floor outdoors, which <laughs> I was impressed by, but it was also weird and strange,
0: strange place. It really is. Um, but anywho, so. I'm in there and then I'm texting you about that. And then I'm I'm going to all the different set because I'm going to different writers as well. Just kind of like taking my time, seeing what books they have there. And they have a great selection. I was very impressed with what they had. And I was like, yeah, but I don't want to pay for it. So I'm just going to say that I live here. And then I go up to the woman. I think her name was Aurora. And she is like so nice immediately. Like, hey, how can I help you? Because I have inherent vice in my hand. And I'm like, oh, I would like to check check this bad boy out. And then also sign up for a library card because I'm new to the area. And she was like, oh my gosh, like welcome. Like she's so nice and effusive to me immediately. She's like, you know, like that's so great. Like happy to have you here, essentially. Like just being very kind and accommodating. I'm instantly like already feeling, you know, horrible that I'm lying about this. And she goes like, okay, so like for your library card, I just need your ID and a piece of mail that has your new address on it. And I'm like, my library. I, my ID says Los Angeles and uh, I could go run home and get a piece of mail because I have gotten like Amazon here and Florence's passport arrived here. And then I'm like, instantly I'm like, then start backpedaling. <laughs> and I'm like, uh, yeah, well, like, I'm not like new here. I mean, I'm new here, but I'm only here for a few months. Um, uh, but I'm staying with family here. They're on you know, up and I gave her the address there. And I was like, I think I have some, some mail there, but like, yeah, just like not my home address. And she's like, Oh, is wait, are you eventually going to have an address here? Cause that's fine. And I was like, and I could tell she was totally like, just, just speak, just say yes. And, but I was like, Oh uh, 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 no, I, I don't, <laughs> My wife and I just started. I'm like, my wife's family's here. They work at Boat. Her mom works at Bowdoin. and and I'm kind of trying to be like grandfathered in while being honest. It's just I'm being so awkward, and she's still being really kind. I'm like, no, but like, yeah, we're like actually moving to to Portland, Oregon. And then she was like, okay, so you need like a, a temp, like a three month membership. We actually have those for twenty five dollars. And I was like, great, let's do that. so i instantly so i ended up there anyway yeah but then she she runs me through it she gives me the card she's being really nice and then she's like okay well i'll check this out for you and she checks it out and she goes i actually then i ran out and i got they had a copy of the sentinel and they had a copy of 2001 a space odyssey which is purportedly your next episode so i got them both perfect for Uh, the pot yes And then I come back and she checks them out for me. And then she's like, okay, well, nice to meet you. And she gave me this look like, just don't say a word. (laughs) And like, like you're your own worst enemy. I can already tell. And I was like, okay. And I walked out and I didn't pay. And she took me up with a three month, three month card. Friend of the pod, Aurora. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) it's that's so it's so funny when
1: someone is trying to get you to lie or break the rules and you just can't do it i remember once uh this is so incredibly low stakes but uh my big thing is bringing in dried mango into movies and (laughs) winter time it's my huge thing winter time i've got my denim jacket which has several mango pockets perfect easy um, but at some point, the, at the arc Light, when it was still open, they let you bring in food and drinks, and then it just flipped and they stopped. And I remember one time I, I was with my my then girlfriend, and I just was open open carrying uh, my dried mango, and the woman ripping tickets stopped us. Was like, "Oh, you can't bring that in here." And she was like, "I was like, ah, I'll just eat it out here real quick or throw it away." And she's like, "Do you want to take it back to your car?" And I was, like, I was like, nah, I'm just going to eat it here, throw it away. And she was like, do you want to take it back to your car? While she's like staring at my girlfriend's purse, like clearly being like, walk around the oh. corner and then come back. And I was like, no, nah, it's really okay. And then my girlfriend was like, let's go take it back to the car. And then we turned the corner. And she's
0: like, you idiot. She's telling us to sneak it in. God, I mean, that's, that's yeah, exactly. It's a great thing. And then you're like. That almost seems like I think you should leave. Like, no, I'll just eat. The- <laughs> <laughs> like, It's actually good. Like, I actually prefer to do this. I kind of wanted to eat it in the lobby <laughs> anyway. God, I mean, I, yeah, just, it's the worst. I it's, it's like, you either have to commit, commit to the lie or, or just, just be honest from the get-go. It's it just like yeah, unnecessary, it's unnecessary stress. Hard to split the difference. Uh, anyway. So we're we're talking about inherent vice today, as as we've uh mentioned several times without actually talking about it yet. But this is a, a work that's I feel like, as we mentioned in their first episode of uh with No Country for Old Men, is this kind of maybe was the genesis for this podcast. I'm getting a phone call from Nick Ledger, the person who I uh gifted a copy of this. I'm going to decline. Anyway, um, the devil and he shall appear. Exactly. Great, great man, Nick. But so uh, Tanner and I are big PTA fans and big literature fans. Tanner, I feel like is, is it, is it um, safe to say that maybe your favorite genre, I don't know if movie, but book is detective or noir. Would you go that far?
1: Yeah. I don't know that it always, or that it still is, but it certainly was a big part of my getting into books more heavily. Like I definitely and through film too, like noir films definitely was slipped in through, well, I need to read all of Raymond Chandler because everything I like seems to come from Raymond Chandler. Mm -hmm. And plus, like, you know, I love the Los Angeles settings of those books and films associated with those things. Uh, So that was definitely my my way in. And yeah, it kind of feels that way. Um, Less so lately, but but certainly with books and movies like this, um, it really means a lot to me, that genre.
0: Yeah, it's a great, it's a great genre and it's, it's going to be interesting to see how it makes a transition kind of into the modern world with like um, the exception of a great episode of Nathan for you. It seems like uh, being a private investigator isn't quite uh, all cracked up, <laughs> cracked up as it used to be perhaps, but it is, I have a theory about this too. I think that part of the reason LA and PI go so well together, cause it's like, it's letting you be on the outside of that world without like, cause so many movies that take place in LA or like our Hollywood satires or Hollywood movies, I think can alienate like an every man or every woman from, from being a, totally immersed in it because you're kind of like, Oh, I'm just, you're watching kind of, as you say, a hermetically sealed world, but the PI kind of punctures that. And it's not somebody who has that is not an actor, or director, or an actress or whatever.
1: Yeah. He's the, it's the outside inside thing. It's like whatever the there's the Raymond Chandler quote, um, I don't remember what it is, but it's where the movie Mean Streets gets its title about needing a hero who can walk down these mean streets, like someone who can do both mm-hmm. and like take you with them. But I think that that's a good point because that fits in really well with while this isn't a Valley movie, it, it's kind of what Paul Thomas Anderson's Valley movies are as well. You know, I mean, in Boogie Nights, it's like the, the, the other film industry, but it's that mm-hmm. kind of outsider of Hollywood like the suburbs looking in that a lot more people can relate to and kind of be taken into that world through that. I don't know. I think that's interesting. Uh,
0: that's no, a good I, point. I, uh, well, I'm glad you think it's a good point. No, I, I would agree with bookie nights as well. Um, yeah. The, the other film industry, the other, other white meat as fat bastard would say about eating babies and Austin powers, the spy who <laughs> shagged me, but to keep that narrative going before we give the reins to Tanner, who's running point on Thomas Pinchon, who's a writer that we both really like. Um, as well yeah I think that's a good it's a good metaphor or not metaphor it's a good just sentence that I'm gonna say not everything's a metaphor um, <laughs> for 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 the character of Doc sportello so he is the the private investigator of this story who then is played in the movie by Joaquin Phoenix and not only is he on the outside of of greater you know Los Angeles and Hollywood and the film scene he's also on the outside of like society in a way he's a hippie and he's kind of he's a a bum living on the street so it's like he kind of has to penetrate it feels like he's um the odds are stacked against him because every single he's just on the outside of every he's on the peripheral of like kind of every intertwining world and this these worlds really collide pretty quickly yeah yeah i mean that's so i mean that you're you're so right
1: and that's like such a specific version of what's great about private eye characters is they can slip into any of these worlds and you know like he's a hippie And like the cop he's friends with hates him, but he's also totally capable of acting in that world too. You know, Mm -hmm. he knows about Hollywood
0: and yeah, he's always out on the outside, but able to sneak in. Great, great point there. So Tanner, without further ado, I want to hear what you've prepped on Thomas Pinchon, who is, uh, he is kind of a recluse a recluse, like on the likes of Salinger um so I'm curious to see where you got your information take it away buddy
1: yeah well I mean god he's so interesting and it's to the point where it's like yeah it seems like everything's been overstated about him which is kind of the intrigue like is he really that reclusive is he a hermit has that all been
0: blown out of proportion because everyone loves a hermit I I certainly do. do Um, um really quick challenger purportedly drank his own urine and is that something there's no way that's true you know what i mean like yeah what? that does seem fake but
1: that <laughs> totally lines up with like the howard uh howard hughes and the aviator you know having his urine in jars
0: similar oh uh, well that's just uh, that's just a normal saturday for me don't, don't, don't <laughs> tell you. anyway back back that's to you baby. So, yeah that's uh having a prostate problem all throughout college and then <laughs> Sometimes a, a group of cool people would be in my bedroom smoking a joint with me. And then I'd notice, hey, there's a glass of pee on the dresser. Let's hope nobody Yeah, I did not know you were being serious. <laughs> I mean, at first I was kidding. And I'm like, well, that well, actually I should clarify. There's some there's some truth there anyway. But my prostatitis, my, my battle with prostatitis aside, I do really want to hear about Thomas Benchon. I don't want to hijack your segment of the pod here. So go for it.
1: Yeah, I mean, God, there's just too much. I mean, i had read so many things about him before, and I kind of went back to this pretty terrific New York Magazine profile. I guess it's a profile. Can you profile Thomas (laughs) Pinchon? From 2013, ahead of the release of, I think it was attached to the coming release of Bleeding Edge, his book from that year that came out a year before Inherit Vice the Film. But I mean, yeah, so he, you know, comes from this totally waspy family, like, apparently the Pinchons were like quite a name with, with uh, which just kind of started his, this self hatred of coming from established society that he, you know, he always seems like he was trying to escape. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, and his, his great, great uncle was uh, Thomas Ruggles Pinchon. Great name. Ruggles. Pres- wow. President of Trinity College. And uh he first took issue with the family's portrayal by Nathaniel Hawthorne, who wrote of the Pinchons in the House of the Seven Gables. So they were like, you know, a notable
0: family. Um wow. It's it- like when Andy Bernard in the office, because I brought up the office every episode, says that he's comes from a line of wasps dating back to Moses. Uh- well, <laughs> Matt, do you do you know the other thing about Andy Bernard and Thomas Pinchon? Oh my God, no! They went to a little school called Cornell. Oh, I, I thought that it was, but I'm like, oh my God, is there? I got really excited. But uh, oh, that is interesting. That the biggest thing that Pinchon may be hiding is that he wants none of his beatniks to find out that he was like rich AF. Yeah, I mean, I mean, well, you
1: know, um, I mean, Pinchon is now married to uh, Roosevelt, but his father remembered saluting uh, Teddy Roosevelt at church, you know, and his dad was a staunch Republican. They lived on Long Island, were part of the kind of like mid-century establishment there. Um, Mm. And his dad was an engineer and then even went into politics um,
0: in the area. So yeah, getting that outside inside connection.
1: No, no, um, totally. It's fascinating. And then, you know, Pinchon went to Cornell. Um, good school, Ivy League school, however much it was a joke on The Office. Um, <laughs> shout out <laughs> my friend, of Mo Ramon, who went to uh, Cornell. Don't think she's a Pinchon head, but, uh, you know, Nabokov also taught there. Um, shout out
0: Mo. Shout out Mo. Um, Wait, is she, is she the one who is the entertainment lawyer who you passed me through to once? No, and now I can't remember. Who, oh, <laughs> no. Okay. I thought her name was something like Mo or something.
1: I think that woman's name was Amy. <laughs> Shout out Amy.
0: Shout out Amy. All right, my bad. Continue. I'm already hijacking you left and right. Keep going. <laughs>
1: um, yeah. Don't know what's up with Amy. She was very nice, though. Um, she was great advice. So, so Pinchon left uh, Cornell halfway through to join the freaking Navy, which obviously influenced, you know, V, um, mm-hmm. and I think a little bit of Gravity's Rainbow, just with like you know the war stuff. Um, and, uh, then he went back to college, uh, after his time in the Navy, which he kind of seemed like he was an outsider in the Navy, the way people talked about him, at least. Um, mm-hmm. he married, nearly married his college girlfriend, but her parents disapproved of him because he wasn't Jewish. Um, seems oh, to be bummer. like, that's kind of what inspired the whole nose job section of V which I don't think is anti-semitic but like is certainly there's something with that like middle class again the mm-hmm. establishment that he was almost a part of if you would have married into this family kind of a disdain for all of yeah. that
0: Yeah, yikes um, um sorry to one more hijack here then I'm gonna be quiet and just to keep making the this compared compared comparison to Salinger just because they grew up around the same time apparently so Salinger was Jewish Right. And apparently his photo in the yearbook was perforated. So people could, p- could take it out. Wait, like, Oh, I see. Cause they didn't want to be seen like that. Like, he yeah, was they, you it. could, if you didn't want the Jewish, the one Jewish guy in your, in the class, in your, 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 yearbook, you could just rip it right out. Jesus Christ. I thought you meant because he was like so hot, you could take it for yourself. Uh- <laughs> no, no. Um, anyway. So I think just to con, contextualize it is interesting that there to put some context to when i feel like there are people saying are discriminating against people who are non-jewish i feel like it's because the anti-semitism was was so uh rampant yeah during this time anyway uh continue yeah even in the post-war period you know i don't know um but uh
1: so basically he follows this married couple that he's friends with to seattle um doesn't really know what to do the woman of the couple gives him He works at boeing and gets him a job as a technical writer at boeing in seattle and you know Mm -hmm. they're fucking making rockets then which is clearly where he got interested in the v2 Mm -hmm. rocket of world war ii and you know which would be the subject of gravity's rainbow so while he's at boeing he gets an advance to write v takes 18 months to write it and then gets paid a thousand dollars when he turns it in immediately quits boeing and goes to mexico city um So that book's released when he's only 26, wins the William Faulkner Award for Best First Novel, is nominated for the National Book Award. And this is kind of like when the reclusive myth begins because he's in Mexico City and is kind of instantly, at least in the literary world, famous. And there's a story that I love that I've read several different times that he's visited two Time Life reporters, I think a writer and a photographer, show up at his place in Mexico City. And his his landlady tells them that he's out because, you know, she probably knows his whole deal. He like mm-hmm. sneaks in and gets his stuff, jumps off the balcony <laughs> and flees to another town in Mexico, uh,
0: Guanajuato, which I've never heard of. Um, <laughs> wow, that's next uh, level that's some next level stuff. Was he living um, with, with William S. Burroughs, like in that crew when they all went to Mexico City? because he's of a similar timeline?
1: I don't think so. I think he there was something. There was someone he met in Mexico City that definitely was it Alan Ginsburg was uh, the other He guy? met Charles de Gaulle in Mexico City. Um, okay. I know Ginsburg was there. I don't think he was part of that crew, but Pinjon did have a best friend from college, Richard Farina who was kind of like a later beat figure who wrote one book kind of about their time. Um, Mm. And at this point, it sounds like this guy was like Pinchon's kindred spirit. Like he was, Pinchon was shy. This guy was outgoing and he kind of brought Pinchon out of his shell. Um, Mm. So around this time after V Pinchon leaves Mexico to go to this guy's wedding in, um, in Berkeley in Northern California, you know, obviously a place that's going to come to have a lot of associations with Pinchon. Um, and at this time, the married couple that Pinchon followed to Seattle is at this wedding. And the woman, this couple, Marianne Thoraldson, who got him the job at Boeing, is the, the woman, uh, leaves her husband for Pinchon. And her husband was one of his best friends, too. Uh, so, oh. and follows him back to Mexico City, where he begins starting to write uh, First Crying of Lot 49. Then she moves with him to Manhattan Beach, which she hates. So, she's a painter. They get in a fight because she paints a photo of a man with huge buck teeth, like devouring a burger in a grotesque way and Pinchon on famously like they're like, you know, only a few pictures of him has buck teeth and is super embarrassed about it. Oh, um, God. She claims the, p- the painting wasn't about him, but one of their friends says that it definitely was because he <laughs> devoured people in like you know in the way he would turn them into fuel for writing. Uh, so she hates oh the bum <laughs> lifestyle in Manhattan Beach. And he this is when he first writes Crying of Lot 49 just to break his contract with his publishers um, because he knows they either have to reject it or pay him and he thinks they'll just reject it, which is why Crying of Lot 49 is so short of course, instead they pay him and it's a pretty great short book and kind of like the go-to starter book for Pinchon, Mm -hmm. you know? Um, And it does rule. So that comes out, he gets paid, (laughs) he gets paid 10 grand for it. And then he starts to write Gravity's Rainbow um, while holed up in his Manhattan Beach apartment.
0: And Um, then at this point, has he broken up with the painter who does caricatures of his teeth?
1: Yeah. I think at this point she, she leaves. um, And, you know, he, he kind of develops there's kind of a cult of personality that develops around him in Manhattan Beach. You know, by this point, he's gotten in more into pot. You know, he looked more straight-laced before. Obviously, he was in the navy. Mm-hmm. And now it sounds like he came to resemble more what we see of Doc Sportello, you know, scraggly hair. I think he has a mustache and he's wearing army surplus clothes, mm-hmm. um, smokes weed, and like kind of was around, I wanted no know part of like the middle class adult life, and surrounds himself with these younger people in Manhattan Beach. And they kind of, like, if you were in the inner circle, you were kind of part of maintaining Pinchon's privacy, basically. Um, and it's okay. interesting because Manhattan Beach is now, so, I mean, th- this is kind of a good good tie-in because this is obviously where the book is set, despite him having lit, or sorry, where Inherent Vice is set, despite his time there being, whatever, 35 years prior. Um, mm-hmm. Was so he I there
0: during the time of the book?
1: He was. Yeah, he was. Okay. He was. He was there up until Gravity's Rainbow came out. So um, basically late 60s through early 70s. Um, I've visited this apartment a million times. Visit. I haven't been inside. But it's it's deep Manhattan Beach. By, by that, I mean further north in an area kind of called El Porto Beach, a kind of a subset of Manhattan Beach. Um, but at this time, you know, in the 70s, it was more counterculture than it is now. Now it's kind of like one of the wealthier of the beach communities in L.A. It still has yeah. kind of a, you know it's it's out of the way the south bay is not really part of la even though it is part of la kind of again this inside outside thing but then mm-hmm. i think at least how it's portrayed in the book it was kind of a stopover place for flight attendants it's close to lax kind of still like this bohemian vibe um and like what, there's one of the few pictures of pinch on is him just sticking a, a peace sign out of the window of his second story uh, apartment in manhattan beach Anyway, oh, it's cool. a great place. It's like three blocks up from the beach, one block down from a pizza place, which I believe is the one they go to in the movie. Um, wow. So anyway, so here he, he writes Gravity's Rainbow in like with his crazy writing habits where he supposedly would black out the windows with with black sheets so he wouldn't know what time of day it is, Writes several books at once. Someone even says they that he told them about Mason and Dixon in the 70s, despite it not coming out to the mid 90s. Wow. Um, just like a total crazy recluse
0: guy, even though he seems to be fighting (laughs) that image. Um, Well, it sounds like maybe the personality is different than the process. You know what I mean? Yeah. 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 It definitely seems to
1: be the case. I mean, at this point he also, like I said, this cult of personality forms around him and he kind of develops this, this reputation for uh, supposedly, you know, kind of a ladies man in a weird backwards way. He breaks up quote unquote several marriages According mm. to his friends, because well, they think he's too shy to create a relationship on his own, and he only can uh, meet women through his friends. Um, so he's like kind of like an expert, like kind of like <laughs> you
0: know those guys' personalities. Were saying <laughs> he can't even get his own girlfriend because he's too he's <laughs> too weird, man. <laughs> he just won't um, talk to anyone, and then that's um, why. But then why are? But it's fascinating that that's kind of not that this is fair in that in this way but it's kind of like cream rises to the top that idea it's like so this guy is this guy's eccentric this guy is uh very uh keeps to himself at least when he writes and but then it's like it seems like people can't help glomming on to him whether socially or romantically or or being fanboys of his word no exactly exactly um and i know this is this is long-winded but we're that's you know we're, no, we're I'm really like fat. I'm of the interesting
1: it. stuff cuz then it's basically just like 30 years that so gravity's rainbow comes out and is essentially a sensation um, it's like you know super long and probably the biggest mark of honor the pulitzer board uh, votes to award it the pulitzer prize but like I don't know the actual terminology but the pulitzer committee thinks it's too obscene and vetoes the prize so it wins but then doesn't win because basically it's too cool um so that's awesome uh but then at this point he leaves manhattan beach and kind of becomes a nomad crisscrossing the country he would talk about taking a greyhound bus from town to town and sitting in the back with a thermos full of coffee just watching people um and at this point he this this is a great detail he crashes with some friends in Oregon for a bit who claim they were kind of like part of the underground railroad of Thomas Pinchon maybe an offensive comparison but I didn't make it uh and (laughs) and supposedly he would just stay up late watching tv and then also watch cartoons in the morning with their kids while they were like being adults that feels Um,
0: very Vineland like just i've only I read the it. first chapter of vineland and i'm like i'm already transported feels
1: so vineland which is where i'm going next because then uh well he leaves oregon because apparently at a party someone points <laughs> out that he's like a famous writer and despite them being at a party full of like rural oregon hicks this isn't like portland um mm-hmm. he is so upset that he just leaves oregon altogether wow um, oh so that's a little really, bit of
0: an overreaction. A extreme yeah yeah right? uh so at then, that point, know, or do you just like the drama a little bit? Like, you know what I mean? <laughs> so at that point, he's, he, uh, uh,
1: he, like a lot of his friends from the 60s left Southern California or wherever else and kind of went into the woods of Northern California, which is mm-hmm. essentially the subject of Vineland. And, you know, he lives in Trinidad, California, the small Northern California town near the beach, um, not to be like-
0: confused with, uh, Tobago, California. Not <laughs> good. <laughs> Uh thank you.
1: Learned about that country through We're the there. Olympics. Uh but uh so he's in Northern California in and like deep northern California, like way past San Francisco in the Bay Area. Um like near Eureka you know, or near Yeah, where, yeah, like, near Eureka. It was just there the, County, other, the other week. It's beautiful. You drove through there, you passed us yeah, there. Yeah, uh, yeah, I stayed
0: at a stayed at a uh little KOA there and saw a bat continue. Hell yeah. Um And uh, so
1: he lives in a cabin near the beach for two years, which seems to be the inspiration for Vineland. Vineland Mm -hmm. doesn't come out for another like 13 years after that. You know, he writes one of the most acclaimed generation defining postmodern books, then takes 17 years to write his next book. When he wrote Vineland, this is hilarious. It wasn't the book he was being paid to write at the time. He was being paid by his publisher to write Mason and Dixon, which does come out. And also, this is hilarious, a never written novel about an insurance adjuster who's flown into Japan to assess the damage done by Godzilla. Very (laughs) fun idea. Very funny.
0: Um, (laughs) Wow. That is a really, that's an amazing, if they could get, if that was filmed by a Japanese direct American director or japanese director that would be like an amazing movie
1: great idea for a movie no seriously um so then he uh so then yeah he wins gets a macarthur grant in 88 then two years later eventually finishes vineland which comes out in 1990 uh is seen as a very much as a disappointing follow-up uh to gravity's rainbow it's slimmer and like we were saying before how watching cartoons feels very uh vineland apparently David Foster Wallace in a letter to his good buddy, Jonathan Franzen said, I get the strong sense that he's spent 20 years smoking pot and watching TV. Um, <laughs> Cause he apparently David Foster Wallace was disappointed, which seems right. I, I love Vineland and it certainly feels akin to inherent vice. And I know we've, we're going to talk about how Paul Thomas Anderson had wanted to adapt that, mm-hmm. but I think it's such a beautiful, funny book that's, you know, very much about how, the dream of the '60s and the counterculture was alive, and how it totally failed and was completely co-opted by the
0: mainstream. Everything, um, which seems to be the uh, which seems to be the case with most with any interesting cultural movement, is that corporations start attaching themselves. It loses its cool factor, and then people become jaded very quickly. Yeah, absolutely.
1: The vigilant Californias of the world pulling the strings. Um, <laughs> so then, uh, you know, then okay, this is where things get less weird and therefore weird. So his agent's assistant, I believe, or at least she's an agent who works for his agent, leaves this agency and starts her own agency, takes Pinch on with her because they're dating. They get married in 1990 and release, you know, like they said, I think they republish some of his short stories in a book, Slow Learner, which I haven't read and kind of break out on their own. Uh, Mm -hmm. He ends up marrying her, marrying his literary agent, Kind of the first marriage, it, you know, it's rumored that he was married briefly listed as married to the woman, um, who left her marriage for him, the painter. Okay, but no one knows if that's real or not. Basically, there's one like something in Berkeley lists them as married. Don't know if real, that's
0: true. real. Quick, do you think Pinchon is the type of guy to hold a grudge? Like, if he ran into her years later, it'd be like, I don't, I can't talk to you. You painted me with buck teeth probably he's, i kind of get that sense crazy maybe yeah. not now maybe he's chill
1: i mean that's the thing is that now so he marries okay not only is this woman his literary agent you know the establishment she's mm-hmm. a roosevelt her great teddy roosevelt was her let me see great grandpa and then on the her other side she's the granddaughter of robert h jackson a us supreme court justice so this is wow. like you know he escaped all the wasp shit Hated it, moved away from it, only to return to like essentially American royalty. Um, That is interesting.
0: I want to add two things quickly. Is that I feel like that happens all the time. Like people rebel against where their their upbringing, where they came from, and then subconsciously or otherwise, I feel like they end up right back at square one somehow. Totally, and that's again what what so many of his. I mean, that's what his books are about. Even before he does that. Sorry. Can I add one more thing about uh, Teddy Roosevelt? I learned recently, this is crazy and hilarious. So apparently Teddy Roosevelt was like insane. Like he just was like, so full of life, but also just like buck wild. Like he was like, you know, the bull moose party, all those things that he apparently would box the heavyweight champion of the world he would invite them to the he invite invite them to the White House to box behind closed doors. I think it was, I want to say Jack Dempsey, but I could be wrong. Blinded him in one eye and he lied about it because he was so embarrassed because he cause he made him bare knuckle box him in the Oval Office. That is so funny, and honestly, what every president <laughs> should do. That's, uh, a, that's it's it's like how everyone how if you prior to Trump, if you won the Super Bowl, you would go to the White House. It was like, right, he, right, right. yeah, he in, in this like, case, oh, you yeah. would tackle them. Yeah, he would you would box. He would want to box the. That just that is wild, but anyway, uh, incredibly badass. Shout out my my
1: good friend Alana, who uh, has a, a a TV program about Alice and Eleanor Roosevelt. I don't know if oh, I can really, say that. I don't care. Um, is it in development or is it, is it greenlit? It, you know, it's somewhere in between those. It's been various places, a lot of great people attached. It should be made. It's really
0: good. Um, wow. Congrats to Alana. Um, congrats to Alana. Um, yeah. I mean, we don't have to get into the, how i dethroned her very quickly on harry potter at the but uh but let's 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 just sounds uh, like just, we just did yeah just that's all you need to know continue alana you're you're very very kind whatever we i would run into so no no hard feelings but i so did want yeah, to come on the
1: podcast and get your revenge with, with we should Rota have ron on during a harry yeah, potter episode actually that, that would be great yeah that would be really cool yeah. um okay so uh um Yeah. Then this is kind of where he enters like the self-aware regular guy period. I mean, now it's like there have been photos of him walking on the streets of New York. He lives on the upper West side. He's got a son who now I guess is close to our age, a couple years younger than us. Um, Jackson, right? His name's Jackson. Yes. After, um, his wife's on the side that after Michael, yes. (laughs) Uh, such such a pop culture aficionado. Uh, and uh no after his mom's or, or melanie jackson i mean that's her last name but her son, that's the us supreme court side not the teddy roosevelt side um, okay but like i got i recently talked to uh one of my best friends uh his parents have lived on the upper west side since the 70s and his dad's like a former math teacher and and scientist and loves gravity's rainbow and he's like pinchon's just a dude He's like in, (laughs) I have friends who were in parenting groups with him. I'm like, I don't know what a parenting group is. Um, But he's just like a regular Upper West Side, like rich guy, basically, who still manages to like stay reclusive. Um, But this is the point where he's kind of making, you know, he appears on The Simpsons, he voices himself and then on the show. The, the cartoon version of him has a paper bag over his head with the eyes cut out, making fun of the fact that he's a recluse. Uh, we mentioned Salinger before. There was this writer who, who had an idea that Pinchon was Salinger. They write uh, so differently. It's such a dumb idea. It's such a dumb idea, but... Uh, uh, Nonetheless, Pinchon, it was bad. Yes, Pinchon responds, writing a note, postmarked from Malibu at the time and written on MGM stationery, clearly in his Hollywood days. He said, some of it is true but none of the interesting parts keep trying about this guy's ideas about Pinch on. So
0: clearly he's playful about the whole thing real quick on, um, do you think that PTA was conflating the stories because in his episode of, of what the fuck he says um, that Pinchon at one point, people thought he might be the unabomber. And he said, right. Nice guess. Keep trying. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I don't know on the quote,
1: but yeah, I mean, there are a million theories like that, the Unabomber that he didn't exist. Apparently, there was someone in like Eureka, California, who was writing letters to the newspaper that someone was like, this is in the style of Thomas Pinchon, it must be him. And it came out, it was just some other person uh some other I mean, hack it's yeah it's so fun to I get it it's fun to theorize about these things I'm like who is he I mean and he clearly courts that now to some degree
0: um, well, I think yeah, it's like he's like the last bastion of literary talent that people care about maybe like in that type of way like a, a yeah, cult of personality as you're saying totally I mean it's like you know now I mean David Foster Wallace died uh, the other people like
1: I don't know Jonathan Franzen's like a character but lame and out there and I feel like yeah he gets dragged watching. a lot he gets dragged yeah. a lot Michael Michael Shabin is like out there. I did read Michael Shabin and once had lunch with Pinchon and was like, yeah, he was really nice and normal and also seemed like a Thomas Pinchon character. Um really all <laughs> I can say. Um uh yeah that's I mean from that point, you know, he write then writes Mason and Dixon, which is kind of a return to form seen as mm-hmm. I haven't read it. I haven't read Mason and Dixon or against the day. I'm eager to um Against the Day is mighty huge. Uh, It's big. It's a thick book. Yeah. Mason and Dixon will definitely happen first. Uh, And then in 2009, you know, he writes Inherent Vice. And then in 2013, Bleeding Edge, which I also really, really like. A very fun, fun book set at the burst of the dot-com bubble just before 9-11 in New York. uh, Full of pop culture references to like Dragon Ball Z
0: and Rugrats and stuff. Uh, I got to read it then. I love both those things. Awesome before you put a nice little bow on our pinch on section, I think maybe I can start the bow. Cause this is really interesting to me. Have you ever heard of, I think his name is Nardwar on YouTube. It sounds familiar, but I don't, you know, I think my friend Max works for him. Hold on. That might make sense. So he is, uh, he is a music interviewer. Like he's an interviewer and he's really eccentric. Like he often wears golf outfits and yes, big I've glasses. Seen this guy. He's really yeah. funny and strange. And he knows like if you it's like the the word on the street with him is that he's like a psychic. Right. Because he like asked you see him ask questions to people and they like they're like, how do you know that? Like he asked them questions. He's like, tell me about like, let's let's say he's talking to um like Tyler, the crater or something. He'll be like, tell me about Kenzie and Kenzie. This isn't true, but the Kenzie would be like the girl he had a crush on in fourth grade you know what I mean? Like he has that and everyone, and you see the people are literally like, there's the great one of, of, I think it's Pharrell. He hands Pharrell a record and is like, what do you think of this? And it's clearly like his, the record that inspired him when he was like four years old and no one's ever told him, or like it was in the mother's womb or something. It's like clearly such a deep cut. It's like, and Pharrell is just like, so like can't even talk. And he's just like, this is, one of the most impressive interviews I've ever been on. And it's like, everyone's like, how does he do it? And then someone was like, he asks, he goes to, he gets the people who are in the guy's crew and asks. That's like, that's the only way it could happen. Is that he asks Pharrell's mom, what album were you listening to when you were pregnant? Like as an example. And I wonder if like, so pinch on like, I know Tom, like PTA is like always like, he knows things. And there's like these deep, like, conspiracy there's so many conspiracies and it's and people in power and the elites in society and it's like oh my god he's related to them he probably just asks (laughs) (laughs) you know what i mean that's very funny he he is exactly he comes from the
1: establishment i mean that also what you just said reminds me of Near the end of the movie, when uh, Shasta says about Sordilege that she knows, knows. things, yeah. which I mean, and
0: Sordilege in this movie is more in the book, kind of is Pinchon, which we'll get to. Yeah, she's the voice of the of of the prose. I think we can talk about this then. But I think she that scene is interesting to me because I wonder if she says that. I've wondered. There's theories if she, if Sordilege is real or not because she disappears from the shot in the car. Um, but I do you know what I'm talking about? Oh yes. It's, yeah. I think um, it's the
1: coolest thing in the world.
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's, it's really cool. Cause I think my theory on that is that she's, she served her function as narrator and now does not need to be in the scene anymore. So she's just pop. Um, but then it's like having at the last second, people are like PTA, no one else acknowledges sword So then someone has to at the very last second kind of to make oh, sure Oh, that's that, funny.
1: I didn't even realize that no one else had acknowledged her. I mean, yeah. I guess there's kind of the one scene where, where Shasta's with her before,
0: but that's also a flashback from Doc's in the, memory. So, and she doesn't, they don't listen to anything she says in that, in right? That, you right. Know, true. And, yeah. That's anyway, so put a big bow on Pinch on Tanner. I'm very impressed with what you got here. Thank you. I mean, I don't know that I have an additional
1: bow, but uh, what an interesting guy.
0: Yeah. Really, it is that is so fascinating to me because everyone's a human being, you know like yeah i mean that's the thing it's like he's this
1: recluse but is it like you know how people talk about paul thomas anderson how everyone thinks he's this dark genius but he comes off as just this dude from the valley with some kid (laughs) i'm sure to some degree especially now that's true of Pinchon, even if he was kind of this nomadic Mm. figure trying to like lead the writer's life back in the day for
0: sure it is i mean this is such a simple maybe bro thing to say but it's just like pinch on everyone you think of who's like larger than life pta movie stars politicians it's like they were all once a baby That's True, <laughs> you know they were all once kids they have parents that regardless of the mystique that gets associated with them they are you know they got they're uh nothing but meat and bones very healthy
1: perspective matt thank you <laughs> I, don't, I don't is that sarcastic
0: i can't tell no 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 i didn't mean to be Oh, just meat and bones is kind of a dark thing to say. So I, didn't <laughs> I think I stole that from Jamie Lannister or my bad, sir, Jamie Lannister and uh, game of Thrones. <laughs> when he's talking to John snow. There's a great part. You've never seen game of Thrones, right? I have not. Well, anyways, really quick. Jamie Lannister is like, everyone hates him initially. And then you come to love him. But, uh, he, uh, is like the best swordsman, arguably in this seven realms or six, seven kingdoms. I freaking forget. But, uh, John Snow joins the Night's Watch, which is basically like he can't. It's like you're you're like you're basically prison guards, you know? What I mean? Like you can't you go and guard the wall where all the nasty things are, and you protect the realm, but you can't have property anymore. You you can't uh, you can't own yeah, you can't own property, and you can't have a wife or have any kids or anything. And it's just like Jamie's just like fucking with him, like it's when he's saying goodbye, and he says something, and then. John Snow, unprompted, is like, oh, "We've guarded the kingdoms for over ten thousand years," and then Jamie Lannister just goes, "Is it? Is it we already?" Didn't he? <laughs> <laughs> like he says, like it's just I know that didn't probably cut that out. It's unnecessary, but it makes me laugh. I love it. <laughs> okay, so this brings us to Inherent Vice, as you know, you uh, said it was in two thousand nine. So this book, I love the the book is really great. Um, We were trying to figure out as for this podcast, what what movies and uh, books kind of have similar weight with the author and the filmmaker. And I feel like this is this is a book and a film that I don't know which one I prefer. How about where you're at, Tanner?
1: Yeah, I don't know. I might be the movie just because I like movies more. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you know, like it might be just come down to that the default. But I mean, they're certainly so interesting in conversation with each other. And I do think *Inherent Vice*. I mean, I guess maybe because it's more accessible, but it is one of my favorite *Pinchon* books—the one I've, I've, the ones I've read. Um, mm-hmm. Which puts it, you know, in a high standing among all books.
0: You think it's so? Wait, wait, yeah. Give me your, give me your, uh, your top *Pinchon*. Your tiers.
1: <sighs> That's hard because it's like. I mean, so I haven't read two of them. I haven't read Mason and Dixon or Against the Day. Um,
0: of the, oh, I haven't
1: read any of those either, but of the ones you've read, which
0: which do you prefer, you it's think? It's
1: hard. I mean, I guess maybe Inherent Vice just because it's so attuned to my interest, but now I'm a little, you know, I'm a little insecure about it. Do I just say that because it's also <laughs> a movie I like? And Gravity's Rainbow is, I mean, it's kind of the obvious pick and it's certainly stunning and seems impossible and something you read and you feel like this guy has access to everything happening in all of history to you know to pull from just to make maybe like the best fart joke ever or something like that um <laughs> it's great but I, you know honestly i was really moved by vineland and i know that's one that was looked down on at the time but that might be my favorite i, I would say vineland then inherent and gravity's rainbow then probably v then bleeding edge then the crying of lot 49
0: all all you liked bleeding edge great. more than v I think so. Maybe. I mean, V is certainly more impressive. And again, oh, sorry. Ble- you said, sorry. You said V. Sorry, my bad. I cut you off and got it wrong. Cause you said V before bleeding edge. Oh, did I? That's yeah. fine. I was probably thinking bleeding edge first and I was like, Tanner, don't,
1: don't look stupid. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. I probably do like bleeding edge more. Um, I'll take V over crying of lap 49, which is great. And like has so many obvious pinch on things, the secret society of like mailmen or whatever it is <laughs> feels so like, you know, Oh, that's what, what Thomas pinch on is like a character named Edipa mass. Um, <laughs> but I think that, you know, just cause it's slight and kind of smaller, that's gotta be the worst one. Um, bleeding edge really great though. And also similarly, like a private eye thing, but in the internet world. Um,
0: so yeah, I mean, uh, yeah. How about you? Well, I've I've have i have i have only read V and Inherent Vice, so, right, right. so I Inherent don't Vice have Inherent Vice over V. I do. I've been me- reading, meaning to read Vineland forever. I got that cool copy that you always complimented me on, and then I got you that same copy because it kept presenting itself to me at bookstores, and I was like, I just have to get this for Tanner. Let me and real then, quick,
1: uh, very uh, my own pinch on mystery, perhaps could begin with the, the used copy oh, that copy came with came with like it was a feature had a photo in it an old photo of some woman again not podcast material but i'm showing that of a woman laughing in a chair in what appears to be maybe i guess it would have at least been the 90s there's a chessboard in the background she's dressed in kind of hippie-ish clothes maybe she read v or vineland rather maybe
0: the person who took it read vineland hard to say wish i knew who she was that is, it is fascinating because as we know, the if you have never read V, the, the plot of V that it really deviates from, it really hooks you and then deviates, which is why I ultimately don't like it. I think is that they're trying to discover who V is. It's like V is the name that's been omitted in a series of journal entries. Um, I forget which character. Maybe the was it Benny Profane's dad or something? His, yeah, I think his it's journals. Benny Profane's dad. Yeah, and that's like a fascinating thing. It's also really, have you ever read Without Feathers by Woody Allen? I have not. It's it's a really good uh collection. It's like a bunch of short. It's just like short fiction essays. We just kind of glommed together. Um, I actually read it because the character. What's his name? Who's the guy who plays Ray in uh, Girls?
1: Um, Alex Karpovsky.
0: Yeah, he's seen reading it in Lena Dunham's first feature film. In Tiny or, uh, Furniture. Yeah, Tiny Furniture. That's I was like, really there. funny. So I got obviously Woody Allen's a, a a bad, bad man, but uh it's really funny. And there's a joke that there's a <laughs> Real joke quick, that sounded it sounded more like uh like you were complimenting him. <laughs> <laughs> oh well he's a bad I mean, motherfucker. <laughs> well, I have to say, I mean, if you're if we're ranking there's there's no one to me in culture, at least right now, who's living who has more identical signs of genius than Woody Allen, but he's like, obviously a reprehensible character.
1: Yeah. Reprehensible person. And we wouldn't have a lot of great pop culture that we have
0: without him doing Mm -hmm. what he did. His stand-up holds up the best out of his contemporaries from that generation. Like it's so funny. And then, but anyway, the joke in wood without feathers, it makes me think of V he goes, should I marry H not until she gives me the rest of her letters over in her name. (laughs) (laughs) Good joke. Good joke. Like this without feathers is like full of that kind of stuff. But um, yeah. So I guess I'm assuming that anyone who is tuning in has probably read the book, but if, if, and, and, or seen the film. So let's, I guess let's just give a little bit of context. Tanner, how would you um, describe, do you want to just give like a little bit of, of a little log line for us? You can read the actual one or you could uh, just come up with it on the fly what a thing to put on me. Uh, just,
1: yeah. Cause. Um, <laughs> yeah, let me, uh, let me read the log line. So I don't have to do it myself. The lo- um, I have it right
0: here. Do you want me to read it? Do it, do it. Okay. Well, I'm just about to read for a little bit, but, uh, here. So I, mean, I, have I dominated the pinch on section. So I loved it. That was really, really good. It made me a little self-conscious of my, my doll section, but that's not what it's about. This isn't, why are we comparing ourselves to one another? Not Yours was amazing. Mine was good. Yeah. Okay. So, um, Inept pot-smoking private investigator Larry Doc Sportello cruises 1970s Los Angeles in search of easy money, free love, and laid-back good times. But when his ex-girlfriend goes missing, Doc takes on the most baffling case ever and journeys into the dark heart of the City of Angels to get her back. Damn. Very well said. Very well said. The dark heart of City of Angels is really, really good, uh, just to describe it that way. Okay, so before we move on from the book and talk a lot about the film because we love this film uh i did want to read something here it's a little bit long and ultimately maybe i'll truncate it or cut it out um, of the podcast but i think this is what captures what i love about it so when characters in books and movies especially books i found are using drugs especially psychedelic drugs it's so, and I, you know, as a writer, I can see the difficulty. Cause it's like, I've been there, you know, you're writing a scene and a character takes a drug and you really want to be like colors, man. And everything changed. And there was a pink unicorn and like, it's just like in reality or like crazy visuals, but in reality, when you take these drugs, you have very ab- abstract thoughts. Would you agree, Tanner? Would you, would you commit to saying that on the podcast publicly? You have abstract thoughts. from my two times doing drugs one of them with you that uh you do have <laughs> abstract thoughts you do have abstract thoughts and uh Pinchon typically employs a, a third person narrator not quite omniscient but very close to the main character they're pretty much omniscient of the main character but not necessarily the motivation of others other than an inherent vice it's a lot of exposition for example, they the this narrator knows a lot of exposition about all the characters that Doc, the main character, does not know necessarily, but it feels pretty close and anchored in on Doc. Would you say that's accurate? Yeah, totally. Okay. So the the thing I love. So I'm going to set this up. So there's two acid trips in this, in this, what I'm about to read. There's two separate a- acid trips in the course of one page 106 to one hundred and ten, And basically Sortilage <laughs> has a has a guy, his name's V he. Great name. Uh That gives him two separate hits of acid and it's trying to get clarity and figure out where Shasta may be kind of like it seems like the function of when someone consults like when police officers consult a uh, a psychic, you know, here we go. The first acid trip is like insane, right? And then the second one is a little bit less so but here we go. It all begun, apparently, some 3 billion years ago on a planet in a binary star system a quite good distance from Earth. Doc's name then was something like Key. It's XQQ. i I'm not exactly sure how to pronounce that. We'll say Key. Because of t- the two suns and the way they rose and set, he worked up some very complicated shifts, cleaning up after a lab full of scientist priests who invented things in a gigantic facility which had formerly been a mountain of pure osmium. One day he heard some commotion down a semi-forbidden corridor and went to have a look. Ordinarily sedate and studious personnel were running around in uncontrolled glee. We did it. They kept screaming. One of them grabbed Doc or actually Key. Here he is the perfect subject. Before he knew it, he was signing releases and being costumed in what would skew, In what he would soon learn was a classic hippie outfit of the planet Earth, and then led over to a peculiarly shimmering chamber in which a mosaic of Looney Tunes motifs were repeating obsessively in several dimensions at once in vividly audible yet unnamed spectral frequencies. The lab people were explaining to him... Meanwhile, they just invented intergalactic time travel and he's about to be sent across the universe maybe three billion years in the future. Oh, and another thing, just before throwing the final switch, the universe, it's been like expanding. So when you get there, everything else will be the same weight, but bigger with all the molecules further apart, except for you. You'll be the same size and density, meaning you'll be about a foot shorter than everyone else, but much more compact, like solid. Can I walk through walls? Key wanted to know. But by then, space and time as he knew it, not to mention sound, light, and brain waves were all undergoing these unprecedented changes. And next thing he knew, he was standing on the corner of Duncrest and Gordita Beach, and sorry, Duncrest, Dunecrest, and Gordita Beach Boulevard, watching what seemed to be an endless procession of young women in bikinis, some of whom were smiling at him and offering thin cylind- cylindrical objects whose oxidation products were apparently meant to be inhaled. So that's the first one. <laughs> Crazy. Right. Pretty great. Yeah. Pretty amazing. It's so weird. This is one I don't think is like, yeah, man, I've been there. Um, (laughs) But it's just exciting and entertaining. And I feel like it takes that trope in like a fun way. Absolutely. But here's the one that I actually think is, is, um, is we'll see how much we'll read, we'll read of it. But I remember reading this and I was like, God, this is, this is good. This is really uh, effective. So basically he comes back from that first time, this first acid trip. And he's kind of like, that was crazy. I don't want any like through the wall, sci-fi type of stuff. I want something that's like going to give me uh, clarity. He doesn't quite say that, but that's what he's seeking. So V, sort of his friend gives him another hit and he goes, and he, here we go. At least it wasn't quite as cosmic as the last trip. This acid enthusiast had acted as time travel. Sorry, I'm going to start over. At least it wasn't as At least it wasn't quite as cosmic as the last trip this acid enthusiast had acted as a travel agent for. Well, it began exactly when it began exactly wasn't too clear. But at some point via some simple, normal transition, Doc found himself in the vividly lit ruin of an ancient city that was and also wasn't everyday greater L.A., Stretching for miles, house after house, room after room, every room inhabited. At first, he thought he recognized the people he ran into, though he couldn't always put names to them. Everybody living at the beach, for example, Doc and all his neighbors were and were not refugees from the disaster which had submerged Lumuria thousands of years ago. Seeking areas of land they believed to be safe, they'd settled on the coast of California. Somehow, unavoidably, the war in Indochina figured in, the U.S. being located between the two oceans into which Atlantis and Lemuria had disappeared was the middle term in their ancient rivalry, remaining trapped in the position up to the present day, imagining itself to be fighting in the Southeast out of free will, but in fact, repeating a karmic loop as old as the geography of these oceans, with Nixon a descendant of Atlantis, just as Ho Chi Minh of, was of Lumeria. Because of tens of thousands of years, all wars in Indochina had really just been proxy wars, going back and back to the previous world, before the U.S., before French Indochina, before the Catholic Church, before the Buddha, before written history, to the moment when three Lumeria and holy men landed on these shores, fleeing the terrible in, in, inundation which had taken their homeland, bringing with them the stone pillar they had rescued from their temple Lumuria and had sent up as the foundation of their new life, the heart of their exile. It would become known as the sacred stone of Mu, and over the centuries that follow, as invading armies came and went, the stone would be taken away from time for safekeeping to a secret location to be put somewhere different when the troubles were over. Ever since France begun con- colonizing Indochina, on through the present occupation by the U.S., the sacred stone had remained invisible, withdrawing into its own space. So it keeps going, it keeps going, it keeps going, right? And then there's a spirit guide coming named Kumaku, who's his Lumirian spirit guide. And basically, Lumeria is talked about throughout the book, especially by Sordilage. It's kind of the 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 Atlantis of the Pacific Ocean. It brings them into a a ship, right? Doc recognized the golden fang preserved. Kumeka silently corrected him. This was no dream ship. Every sail and piece of rigging was doing its work, and Doc could hear the snap of the canvas and the creak of the timbers. He angled in towards the port quarter of the schooner, and there was Shasta Fay, brought here, it seemed, under some kind of duress, out on deck alone, gazing back in the way she'd come, in the home she'd left. Doc tried calling her name, but of course, words out here were only words.
1: Pretty incredible. Right. I mean, the even the simple the dream logic of was and was not Los Angeles, were and were not refugees. Yeah, it's just from Atlantis.
0: <laughs> I just really feel like it's 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 addled and drug drug infused and weird and abstract and uh, in all the best ways. You know? Yeah, absolutely. How? Like, it's like, how do you even? I don't know. It's, it's, you almost
1: wonder how he managed to copy that down from whatever trip. He had, you know. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'm sure so much of it is just invention and craft, but it it certainly doesn't feel that way. Um. I also yeah. think. I mean, we're getting to it, but the movie can't do that, and so it does that in so many interesting ways, just with like such simple use of of film language. Um, what a
0: great pair these two things are. This episode of the podcast is sponsored by our good friends at the Cristalodon Institute. Cristalodon is an ancient Indian word that means serenity, and that's exactly how you'll feel upon completion of their inpatient program, serene and clean. Located on top of a planetary chakra in Ojai, California, the Cristalodon Institute is the only clinic with the Motion Picture Palace, now showing the burke Stodger Marathon, all Burke, all day, 24 hours of stodger. You'll work with their top-notch personnel, such as Doctor Threepley and many others. But pay no attention to that large man with a swastika tattoo on his face, because he does not work there full time. It's actually not even a swastika, but an ancient Hindu symbol meaning all is well. The Cristalodon Institute in Ojai, California, now accepting new patients. I agree with that. I think I think there's a hypnotism to the film, and an intrigue, and some an abstraction in narrative devices, especially like, um, one, for example, before we maybe start at the beginning, but uh, I love, I didn't notice this. I don't think, I think I noticed it when we saw it in theaters together and I didn't notice it when I first saw it, you know, when doc is, um, in the golden fang and, uh, Dr. Rudy Blatinoid DDS runs off with the bottle of cocaine, I believe to help Uh the woman, uh, his secretary. There's a problem with the couch with the problem with the couch. And then doc like walks through, the dentist all the dentists doing procedures Uh like things like that that it's like it's like did that happen you know what i mean it's is that really
1: happening is he just accessing is this him thinking through the situation that Mm -hmm. we're seeing um yeah i mean there's so much there are a few moments that where like reality is clearly broken and he's hallucinating in a certain way but so often it's just presented so straightforward and you're like is this just the world and the time that is so unthinkable and and filled with like you know the haze that that he might be experiencing through drugs already um mm-hmm. it's so cool um so you did you we, we didn't talk about did you um you came
0: to the book after the movie is that right i did well i remember we i had seen part of inherent vice like in and i don't i think 2018 and it was one of those times i unfortunately let a rental expire i remember it was like actually right before <laughs> i moved to la i was like um i just i was i i'd gotten into pta at that point um i would got i got into him yeah right around 2017 2018 late to the game but i obviously like really liked boogie nights and punch drunk love and then i was like running through a list of like different movies and it was inherent vice came to the list and i was like oh that sounds interesting and i just watched actually the nice guys which is like a similar type of film right. in a way um, I actually think this. I personally think this film is head and shoulders above the nice guys. Although Absolutely I do like the nice love guys.
1: the nice guys, but it it only you know wishes it. It's very much reaching for the ambitious stuff that Inherent mm-hmm. Vice pulls off. But definitely my favorite Ryan Gosling performance. I think it's just one of the <laughs> funniest things I've ever seen. I He's think great in it. So
0: much of it. Oh my god. It's a great movie, but I, I I feel like I I had more trouble suspending my disbelief with that film than this film. Even though Inherent Vice is so much more out there, I just think it's just the right. Filmmaking. The disbelief is built
1: into it, you know. Like I think Paul mm-hmm. Thomas has said that it's like it doesn't matter if events are plausible or not in a, in a real way if if the emotions are plausible, and that's certainly something
0: that I think Inherent Vice pulls off for the most part. It, it really does and i think he does agree he talked about this in the in the wtf interview how he wasn't how pta doesn't really smoke but when he did there's like there's the line it's like you have you have some actual real clarity on seeing things as they are for the first time but on the others just on the other side of that is full-blown paranoia and i feel like the film straddles that line so well yeah yeah um, absolutely so I first saw it. Yeah. Right around there. I let the rental expire. I remember being a little bogged down in plot and I was really busy. I was packing up my apartment cause I was moving from Chicago to Phoenix uh, to be with my now wife for, uh, we had a little, a little uh, couple months in Phoenix before we managed to get all the pieces in place to move to LA and um, it was like one of those final days and I was distracted. And I just, unfortunately, yeah, I, I had the thought, I was like, I need to, this is a movie that begs your attention. I wasn't able to give it that attention. And then I remember talking to you early in the pandemic. I was like, do you like, in- oh, we were just talking about movies as we do when we hang out. And I was like, I think we, we had so much fodder with Wes Anderson and Noah Baumbach that we didn't, we it took a, and Tarantino. It took us a bit to get to PTA. And then you're like, oh, I love Inherent Vice. It's so good. And I was like, oh, I'll watch it. And I watched it on my iPad while Florence was sleeping um, when she was a few weeks old. Uh, I did the same thing actually for 2001, A Space Odyssey. And I don't know what it was, but both of those films I like reacted to in a way I hadn't before. Like I was just so engrossed in the story and I just fucking loved it. That's so cool. I mean, what... a. It's so
1: funny how certain ways that you think are less than ideal to see films. Sometimes it just hits you perfectly that
0: time. It was because it was like, my daughter was a few weeks old, my wife was was desperately trying to get some sleep, and she was like able to get some sleep. So I like slipped off. I bought both movies to not have the rental expiring thing. No, sorry, that's a lie. I brought I bought Inherent Vice, but I rented 2001: A Space Odyssey, and we'll talk about this next week. But the rental did expire, and I had to watch the most iconic ending in cinema history, arguably, on YouTube. But now, <laughs> but now I own it. <laughs> um Beautiful. And then you read you read the book, and then yeah, that yeah. I started getting obsessed with it and then you enabled that cause you also have an obsession for it. And then I bought, I bought V, I read V didn't like it. And then I bought inherent vice. And then I read that on the East coast. Cause we, we eventually, even though Florence was two months old and the pandemic was, was, ra- was raging. We were just like, air quality was terrible we were stuck in our apartment like we got to go see family so we booked it to the east coast and i brought a a, a little paperback of inherent vice and i just devoured it because i knew that the endings i had heard the ending between the book and the film were different because pta said that in that what the fuck interview where i'm drawing all these comments from but i um i was gripped by the ending because i was like what's gonna is he gonna die like i was like i had no idea how what different was gonna happen. is it how different is it and it's in in it's I would say that the film is very faithful to the story similar to no country. It, it cuts things out in a way that's really efficient. Um, like seeing Mickey Wolfman in the sanitarium when really in doc, it's there's a whole other side plot where he goes to Las Vegas, which is a really fun part of the story. That's like one of the most fun parts of the story. So it's sad to lose it, but at the same time, it's done so Effectively. Also, a question I had for you, Tanner, and this is a good segue into it is that scene, the whole thing of the Chrysalodon, when he finally that scene's amazing? And as he's walking through, and the guy is talking to him, what's the character's name? The doctor who's talking to him? I believe it's Dr. Threepley. Yeah, he's so good and he's mouthing jefferson jefferson
1: mays the actor, yeah just sweating mouthing yeah. The also when he when when doc asks him about the about the swastika and then doc goes he tells him it's not a swastika and doc goes oh and then the guy goes what 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 i just <laughs> thought it, i just thought it was a swastika
0: he
1: says no but pay, actually pay no pay no attention to
0: that man he doesn't, he doesn't even work here full time. Like that. That's so funny. So that whole thing's amazing. And then a little bit of suspending your disbelief is that he's so consumed with talking about it, he doesn't notice slip Doc slip off. When Doc slips off, I was immediately like this. Similarly, not actually as much as Licorice Pizza. When all of a sudden we looked at each other in the theater, we're actually after we saw PTA uh, in the flesh. Uh we have to tell that story maybe in a moment. But all of a sudden you're in Taxi Driver. You know, it's like all I'll of a sudden all of a sudden you're in the long goodbye. I kind of think. Yeah, totally. I mean,
1: first of all, great shot of Doc splitting off from like just straight out of Jacques Tati, like a perfect cartoonish just keeps walking straight as they turn. (laughs) So funny.
0: Um, But but my question, my question to you, sorry to cut you off. And then um, I'm being, being a bad co-host now. I just didn't want to lose the question here because I feel like you're the perfect person to ask this to what scenes parts or aspects of inherent vice do you feel are, Directly inspired by The Long Goodbye or any other neo-noir film set in Los Angeles or noir films?
1: Well, I actually don't think there are that many that are, only in that the book itself is already so indebted to that, uh, you know, that tradition. And I think Paul Thomas Anderson probably has already pulled from, like, you know, Altman and The Long Goodbye. I mean, there are certainly pieces of this movie cinematically that are taken from that. But I do feel like that by this point, after The Master, he had settled on kind of, like, a more stripped-down, direct style, in, deceptively direct in that, like, you know, through s- such simple devices, it becomes so much more interesting. But, you know, there's not much, like, zaniness. There's not much camera movement. I mean, that scene certainly both, you know, it feels like... um like Marlowe going to find Roger Wade in the long goodbye, especially when he's, when he's a great moment, I mean, will cover it someday, but when he has his nose pressed against the screen door, says <laughs> I'm this here private eye, Philip Marlowe. <laughs> um, but to me, it's it's so much more. I mean, that scene is uh, Eric Roberts, one scene outside of, you know, photos that he's in as Mickey Wolfman, incredible. the The cragginess of his face looks like a painting. Um, and just the mm-hmm. simple, you know, I think you get the the one over Doc's shoulder, more like over his head shot of Eric Roberts. And then it's just in on these close ups on them back and forth. And it's so effective that to me, that's more like Howard Hawks or like 40s films than it is like neo-noirs. And I mean, mm-hmm. Howard Hawks make The Big Sleep, which is obviously just in its lineage and influence on this film. But to me, I think it's yeah, he like it's more he's getting away from the long goodbye because he already he already knows it so well and it's almost too obvious cinematically but i i, I totally agree with what you're saying and that the story of the of inherent vice from the book feels like you know the long goodbye the big lebowski um mm-hmm. certainly which is i mean they're both riffs on raymond chandler and a stonery version of that and even the big lebowski the cohen brothers kind of feels like a pinch on riff in certain ways um so it's so funny that he would then write this book in 2009 uh i don't know that that's a direct influence but like we've mentioned he's he lives in the gutter of or of uh, popular culture as well mm-hmm. as high art, so I'm sure he's aware of all those things. But yeah, to, to me, I mean, yeah, I I don't I don't I don't know that that it that it does outside of the
0: actual plot. Okay, well, that's I think that's a really good response because. I was testing you. No, um, because well, the the, the reason I asked it is because I know how much the long goodbye is such an inspiration for PTA in making this film. Like he said, that's why he made it basically because of the long goodbye. And I feel like in a way of the he loves Pinchon, obviously, and uh and um the legacy of Robert Altman then, but it's interesting that you said to me that um he's like he goes away from it. And I guess that makes sense because yeah, he is a he's an artist, he's a he's an amazing filmmaker, a master of his craft um but i don't think he thinks that he that this film or he is better than altman or this film is better than inherent vice you know or sorry than the long goodbye you know what i mean oh yeah definitely there's a humility to it and i do think some of his earlier movies you know he's this young
1: cokehead (laughs) and super ambitious filmmaker (laughs) and he's like trying he's ripping off you know boogie nights and magnolia are ripping off you know altman so explicitly i mean i just saw shortcuts in a theater and it's like came out like whatever six years before Magnolia and they're like the same movie and he's so putting that out there and trying to do that in these you know long moving takes or you know uh overlapping dialogue and that that's not really the case here which would kind of be too obvious Uh, you know Mm -hmm. he's he's reached such like a more mature style um not that this movie isn't silly and zany and fun but it's more go ahead i just think it stylistically it's it's much closer to the master than like boogie nights even though boogie nights is also is more similar Mm -hmm. in its actual content not to say content
0: well the thing that's that's i actually think is staggering about this movie i'm going to say the word staggering are the the amount of master shots and the lack of cuts and editing because it's like it just shows like this is a director who is at a different level, I think, because it's he can he the the way this the scenes are staged, like, for example, the scene and I want to ask you another question, but the scene where um, there's so many scenes I did not realize were master shots the first time I saw it. Um, and then I because I wasn't really watching it. But then the second time in the iPad, I was obviously sleep deprived, but and I was super into it. But then the third I've seen it like five times. And the last one I watched yesterday, I'm like, it feels like every other scene is a master shot. And it's the pacing of it is amazing. Like it's none of it. No scene to me sticks out as needing to be cut. It's so, and it's so, I
1: mean, it's beautiful and it's so well done, but it's also such an economic solution to Mm -hmm. like, you know, all this information and these dialogue scenes. Cause you're so right. There are so many that are just master two shots that slowly push in on a conversation the whole time particularly uh, his two with Owen Wilson and it's, mm-hmm. it's just so it's so smart I mean and there are other ways where it, when it is cutting it's so simple and direct and so effective and beautiful with these kind of almost especially the two scenes in his office um, where it's th- they almost look like these exploitation films these low angle close ups with all the blown out light kind of looks like you right now uh (laughs) in Maine so so effective um
0: well it really is because like the scene I was about to bring up um so when Shasta Faye Hepworth and then Doc hook up again it's a pretty disturbing scene I wanted to get your opinion on it but it starts with her talking and like kind of playing with her nipples like in the doorway and it ends with her bent over on the couch like her face huge in the camera, like her, she looks like just kind of like really high and doc ends up like spanking her pretty savagely because she's like, she's goading him to it. Cause she's talking about how much Mickey Wolfman, like basically how powerful he was and how all the hippies could learn something from him and how she felt invisible, but she part of her loved it because like, it just shows that she was just like with someone who was so powerful. And then doc is like aggressively fucking her. And it's the content of that scene we should talk about because it's a little upsetting, but at the same time, the, the, the arc of just a pure cinematography, um, blocking and performance. It's amazing. I think it's it's so good
1: where it lands. That's the shot of the movie for me. I mean, there are a million of them, but just, yeah, on her face looking, is she satisfied? Is she mournful? And her in the, in the foreground doc in the background and just, Oh, it's yeah. Such a great scene, a long scene, incredibly upsetting, Mm -hmm also quite sexy and it's like mm-hmm. it's one of those it's things hard to i know
0: <laughs> like it's hard <laughs> to know who who you're supposed because for me it's like it's like it seems like that's what she wanted but it's also really aggressive but at the same time like she to me i was really disturbed by that scene in a good way like narratively you know what i mean you're like whoa because it's to me it was like your sweet girlfriend who you had like it seems like a real friendship with coming back and she's like she's she's taken on this new power that's like could could decimate you and then it's like seems like doc is like in in a way rising to the occasion and be like no like like i i'm i'm in charge as well but it's also just to me it was like i feel like i would be if i were doc and this is so easy to say but i'd be like i'd be like Can you go home? Like it's so it's just she I am disturbed by what she's saying because it's it's so it's the it's the it's everything you don't want your 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 every we all have an ex-old lady, right? That we think about and maybe pine for, even if we're happy in our new relationships. If that person came to you and told you everything you didn't want to hear about her sexual exploits, it's that scene. You know what I mean? And it's like, it's, it's, it was very viscerally upsetting to me, but it's in a good so,
1: way. Yeah. You're so right. And it's one of those things. It's like, yeah, we don't know, like maybe this is how their sexual relationship worked, where she would goad him on and then they would have kind of violent sex. But I think it's one of those things. It's such a good example of what the movie does really well, both with Doc's character and the movie itself, where, you know, you're seeing this fun seventies, like hazy stoner comedy but the things it's dealing with are real. And when that cracks Mm -hmm. through, there's nothing held back. It's very starkly violent. And that's such a good example of like, yeah, she's, like you said, goading him into like, oh, do you want me to be this Manson girl for you? Do you want to take ownership over me? And he's kind of forced to be like, I guess I do like mm-hmm. maybe he doesn't maybe he's insulted but it is very violent she seems to be into it but it's scary this guy we we love and who's so calm I mean the other moments of violence in the movie he has to be able to operate that way like when he's at Adrian Prussia's and he kills Puck Beaverton with mm-hmm. a, a porcelain lid of a toilet which again so good it's so upsetting so well, he violent. kills it
0: he kills him with the right right he kills him but with the but, no he subdues him I love <laughs> that because he's smashing on- his head he's on pcp oh there's a couple of things there yeah that i want to unpack because no i i i definitely agree it's just yeah no that's a, a very perceptive it's being like yeah the star the he has to be that way because of the the world he's in and then the way the movie succeeds because it's it gets so starkly violent in these quick bursts you know um but uh fuck what was i gonna say um Remind me, just, just say, Matt, remind me, just give me the hot take. I'm going to come back to a hot take. So if you can remind Got me it. to give you a hot take. Um, but the Puck-Beaverton thing, I think this is just – we don't need to get bogged down in discrepancies, but I just think it's an interesting discrepancy. Right, right. You mentioned this. So so um, let's uh, – Tanner, can you just quickly – can you just take us from point a to point z of, of like plot beats real quick i can do it if if you feel put on the spot just so we can get to why puck beaverton and adrian prussia and they matter to the greater plot because they come at the very end no no totally um one one second matt right this time hey man i'm rec- i'm podcasting
1: sorry oh, okay. no you're good i should have told you all good in the hood i'll get in the hood cool um so, yeah, yeah, well, so um, how we get to Puck Beaverton and Adrian Prussia. Yeah, so, so it's like we
0: start – yeah, go ahead, go ahead.
1: So, I mean, it starts with, you know, uh, Shasta Faye comes to Doc, blah, blah, blah. Her boyfriend, Mickey Wolfman, disappeared, real estate developer. Doc gets taken into this plot where there seems to be so many huge powers that be controlling things, and he has to work with his enemy rival friend, Bigfoot Bjornsson, the cop. Um, and Bigfoot eventually – sets him up as a patsy to get back at adrian prussia who is this drug dealer who bigfoot believes kills his former partner Mm -hmm. Um, and so basically doc ends up in the movie in the hands of adrian prussia and his you know goon puck beaverton um Mm -hmm. and yeah so in the book you you mentioned it's puck that kills bigfoot's partner
0: is that right yeah so that's that. what's interesting because I maybe it made me wonder in a good way we've talked about this when we write together is that when you you can you can write a bunch of stuff out and then cut it as long as you know because it'll inform the rest of your writing you know like people's backstory and like it's kind of how I felt here but there's two things that are interesting so uh, Bigfoot at that uh, amazing scene where he's having pancakes and he's yelling <laughs> Pancake. uh he he fin he feeds Doc both those names right Yes, yes. Which which to me is solidifying like they're 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 these this is now kind of a buddy cop movie in a way about police officers who are not in the same car, you know? No, no, no. It definitely is that I mean, and then you have the there's the incredible sequence
1: that again, it's like, what is real? What's happening where Doc is running down and realizing the situation with Adrian Prussia? that mm-hmm. he killed, that he'd gotten, you know, let off a million times because he's an important drug dealer and that he killed Bigfoot's partner and got away with it. And it goes from Doc's speed reading through the files that Penny gives him access to, to mm-hmm. a memory where it's unclear if it's Bigfoot's memory, if it really happened, where Adrian gets let go, then walks by Bigfoot and Doc and says, oh, is this mm-hmm. your new partner, Bigfoot? Clearly Doc wasn't actually there for that. And it's, it, or maybe he was, but it doesn't no, really yeah. make sense. It doesn't make,
0: it's similar to the dentist scene. I just think it's, it's, it's such an effective narrative device that lends itself to like the abstract. Totally funny. He's eating the frozen banana. (laughs) Um, so yeah, so I guess the, the, the thing that's interesting to me is so Puck Beaverton, um, kills is the one that kills Bigfoot's partner in the book Vincent Delicato but Adrian Prussia is protected by the LAPD because he's essentially their hired hitman he gets charged with crimes where they always get pled down and and he walks that's kind of the agreement they're kind of they say that they can't leave it unsolved because of federal money or something but they can get him to, which is a hilarious comment um but anyway he says I just think this is this is so goofy to me but interesting so you know why why uh Puck, you know, when Puck kisses Doc aggressively. Yeah. And in the book, Puck's sexuality is unclear. So he has he hooks up with Clancy Sherlock and he and his roommate, uh, who I think is Einar is his name. Um, but he hates basically Adrian is like, I don't want to kill this guy because I don't care about him. I basically only want to kill people where I care about it, kind of uh, which is interesting, but also terrifying. And he says, why don't you kill, like, he's basically like, Puck, why don't you kill him? And I'll just take the fall. So Puck does it. He's Adrian, like they set it up and Puck kills him. Uh, He kills Vincent Delicato, which is Bigfoot's partner. Right. Uh, But he says that he justifies it by saying Delicato was prejudiced towards in a quote, a pure hatred of homos because Buck or Puck's friend, Einar kept being discriminated and arrested by Vincent Delicato and he was a gay man, which is just a word by gay. It's unclear. It's not explicitly said other than this, I believe, but I'm so baffled by it and laughing because puck is like in the Aryan brotherhood and has a, has a swastika tattoo on his face. And I'm like, Oh my God, is this guy overcompensating? Is this, is this why he's, he's in a sense like this. It's just a fascinating, weird layer of the story.
1: Yeah, it's so interesting. I mean, I feel like even in the movie it deals in these, uh, um, what's the word I'm looking for, these hypocrisies so well, like even with uh, the Michael K. Williams scene where he's like, hold on, <laughs> Black <laughs> Black Panthers and Aryan Brotherhood, isn't there something about hatred there and just how like they all at a certain point, they're anti-government, Government, they, you know, yeah. they're fringe groups that Somehow men- meld together, even though they hate each other, um, and that causes big messes and the failings of the counterculture. Uh, it's so interesting. Also, just love uh, when when Doc is first introduced to the the person of Puck Beaverton. The the puck, puck what what what's a puck Beaverton?
0: <laughs> Any <laughs> well, what's a than a name? Always funny. Well, something that I think is hilarious too is uh, I thought you were going to mention this. Is how many times that that uh, Doc blows his own cover. So he says hi to Puck. They've never met at the beginning of that scene. He's like, oh, hey, Puck. And then he's like, do I know you? And he's like, oh, you remind me of a guy that I, knew that I saw." <laughs> right, right. Right, right, right after him. he's seen him in uh, hi. The funniest the funniest part to me though of him doing that is at the very beginning of the movie where uh, Jade in Chick Planet Massage says, are you a cop? And he goes, no. And then he goes, oh, I was going to say if you're a cop, you're entitled to a free preview of our of our Puss eater special. And he goes, what about a licensed PI? Like he immediately <laughs> tells her that he's a licensed PI. Right. What he's doing. Oh my God. It's amazing. Another note I had that made me also confounded me was that Jade says that the chick planted is a front for laundering their drug money, uh, the golden fang, but isn't prostitution illegal? Like they're, you know what I mean? It's like, they have a legitimate. That, front that is dentist. hilarious. Yeah. Yeah. To use <laughs> a, something that needs a front as a front yeah i guess it's oh, a massage parlor i guess but they say blow job on the wall and like old-fashioned fuck two girl fuck um all that stuff so i guess it is but it is that is funny one thing i noticed tanner too that i want to make sure to shoehorn in here as well before i have my hot take moment um did you notice this you you probably did your perceptive mofo but i did not notice the the goal when the first so shasta shows up in that first scene right and oh, then, i definitely didn't
1: i saw i saw you mention this in the notes
0: did you did you then see it when did you uh, go nah, back or? I didn't go back but I mean I believe you. I can't yeah I couldn't believe I never noticed this before but um the so the first scene Shasta comes back to tell to get you know based the inciting incident she leaves the apartment Doc walks her back up she says like uh you know you were always true she drives off Doc is looking mystified he walks back to towards his apartment he runs into Dina's. And as he's walking down the street to go back, there's that two shot of it's like a close up of both houses. That's it's in it's multiple times throughout the movie. Right, the opening scene. shot, and then yeah. a later
1: times before the very end comes back to that beautiful, definitive mm-hmm. South Bay shot. It's so good. But in the middle of that is a, the Golden Fang. That's great. The there are a group. few. There are a few other times, uh, a, a sequence of shots I wanted to point out because it just you know something that film. The, the ways that that wouldn't translate to film, like the passages you read before about the intermingling of time and all these things, there's the sequence where um, after Sancho explains the Golden Fang to Doc and docks back home, where it cuts to just a view, a point of view shot of the ocean and a boat, unclear if that's the Golden Fang or just a ship, then it goes to a shot of Shasta from the past, presumably when they're together, then to a shot of Doc looking out his window in binoculars. Did he see that shot through his binoculars and then remember Shasta? We don't know. Is it from another Mm -hmm. time? Is he thinking about Shasta being on the Golden Fang? And it's just, it's so simple and effective in creating that atmosphere.
0: It's amazing. Um, I actually thought that shot reminded me of the acid trip which is kind of part of the reason I brought up the acid trip is that he's seeing her on the boat. There you go. I mean, it's so, and it's so, so simple. I mean, we've talked about, you know,
1: sort is she real? Is she not? I mean, she's on screen. She's the first character on screen voicing over. Then it has that incredible fade to Shasta entering Doc's apartment. This movie has some of the best crossfades I've ever seen. And it's so good. There's there's the one when, when Doc uh, writes Shasta's name on a, on a piece of rolling paper, then smokes the joint, where it mm-hmm. fades almost fully to his memory of her smiling at her, but he's still there behind the image and then back to him without a referral fully going over really stunning and and but the the sort of Liege moment the first one which is just so simple and smart again i've said simple so many times but when you know there's the shot of them driving and she's giving him advice where he's going to um uh wherever it is uh oh god place name is escaping me um Going to South... No, no he, when he's going to that, that is later too, but when he's going to, to South LA, a real place in South LA um, after meeting Tariq Khalil um, and she's there and then it cuts the reverse when she's not there. And it's so simple, you know, mm-hmm. we don't see her disappear. It's a simple cut. And I just think that pretty... it's so brilliant. Oh, yeah. And then we get, you know, I um, this is kind of delicate, but both in the Tariq Khalil scene and then this scene, I think this movie really does a good sly job of showing in a sweet way how like hippies had less in common with the establishment white people than they did with maybe the black community. The way Mm -hmm. Doc greets, I mean, obviously PTA is a white person, you know, married to a black woman. Um, but the way doc greets michael k williams it should be played for laughs and anyone else would but when he says what it is brother you know he's like speaking his language it's so earnest and mm-hmm. michael k williams takes it that way and it's so sweet and then you have the shot after sort disappears of doc driving into south la and there are the two black children running next to him smiling and he smiles back that's a shot taken from charles burnett's killer of sheep i think a member of the la rebellion like kind of filmmaking crew it's a great movie came out of UCLA about South LA and it's just this homage, but it also, it just, I don't know. Doc is just so kind and it's, it's Mm -hmm. really moving to me. And that's right. When we're getting into like the reality of like, you know, like sort of Liege mentions and voiceover, like the history of Southern California real estate takeover, which is as relevant as ever today, you know, Mm -hmm. communities kicked out of other areas and, you know, now nothing's affordable and we live in the supposedly bastion of liberalism or I live now, it's just the opposite and it's always been like that which is certainly mm-hmm. an idea of pinch-offs and one that paul thomas anderson i'm sure is familiar with being from the area
0: well i think it's yeah it it i agree i have, a, I have some questions about the michael k williams character for you as well um rip great actor he plays also in boardwalk empire character named chalky white he's a really phenomenal actor and he's in the wire as oh, well wire, that was his wire. um but yeah, it's it's Artesia hitting
1: the, going. Sorry.
0: Yeah, Artesia Boulevard. Um the Artesian Crips is a street gang that's uh with birds picking at it. That's such a great way when he says that, yeah, we're Doc's code switching in a way and and I think that's so true and it's 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 goofy cuz then it's like Tariq talks about how he and Glenn this neo-Nazi shared similar opinions about the US government and it's the george carlin quote it's a big club and you ain't in it and the the reality is the vast majority of us are not in the big club white people we happen to have many more members right we have like <sighs> 10 times more members but the everyday folks it's not the case but in general we are able to operate in society with greater efficiency because of the systems set up in place and that you know black people have to be the exception that's kind of where the that's our standard mode of operating we're already in it they kind of have to be exceptional and the exception to the rule otherwise they're going to be relegated to their position in society historically um but i think it's it is so fascinating how that connections can still be made because in general most people are not um feeling like they are a part of it does that make sense
1: no, no, totally. It makes sense. Yeah, even when you're a part of it, you don't feel like you're a part of it all the time.
0: Yeah, um, I mean, but do you think?
1: No, do you think? Sense.
0: Well, yeah. Do do you think that 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 character is just to provide more context with the LA housing and why this the stakes that are involved, and it kind of does set up the federal backlash against the Black Panther movement. I just love how subtle, or it's not even subtle, but it's like, of course, these federal people are talking like there's all this nefarious activity. And then they're like, we're here to talk to you because Tariq Khalil, a member of a known black militant hate group. And then I know a lot about that with the Fred Hampton stuff and the Black Panther movement and contil Pro, which was a CIA backlash against the Black Panther movement where they labeled revolutionaries as you know enemies of the state and all this stuff. But uh, it's like, why do you think? Because to me, it's like, The thing that's a little bit of a bummer is that the Tariq stuff feels like an inciting incident and then just kind of goes away very quickly. So, what other than providing context, what do you think the function of his inclusion in the story is, either in the book or movie? I think it is just providing context and painting a picture of like the evils of both the
1: federal government and how, you know, that that became manifest in LA, in this, like, you know, the land of the California dream. And I think that's something that Pinchon has always been interested in. I mean, he wrote a piece about the Watts riots in the New York Times in 1966, you know, when he was already, a, you know, he'd become a famous writer after V. I mean, this this is certainly something that's been a fascination with him. And it, yeah, I mean, it's just an overstepped book that's full of all these details, you know. I mean, the, the Black people being removed from Artesia ties into everything that Mickey Wolfman does. And, you know, him his realization that, uh, I realized
0: that it should be free, Um <laughs> Oh that pe- There's no stronger indictment of capitalism, I feel like, than this movie saying that um, wanting to give away your money is paramount to insanity
1: exactly exactly i mean and that's the thing about this movie and the book is that it's also complicated and confusing and confounding but then really no it's not it's like the simplest oldest story you know it's at the end when uh when uh the the, the hilarious suburban looking white middle class people are taking the drugs from doc as don't know much about history you know play <laughs> like this has always been the case yeah right
0: it's just that, they're out in the open it's so funny the,
1: the... So uh, how long have you worked for the golden Fang?
0: <laughs> I kind of think that might've been a darling, but it's so good like to cut, you know, cause it's just like, it's so so funny. funny. It really is though. I wanted to point out uh, quickly too, is um, I remember this hit really hard. And when we saw it, so Tanner and I we mentioned this last or the first episode, but we saw Inherent Vice together in Santa Monica at the Arrow theater. Maybe my first movie I saw back in theaters in the pandemic and when they cuts to doc in his apartment with all of the kilos of cocaine and that got a huge laugh. Kills every
1: time. It's it also is. watching it this time. It's the perfect amount. Cause it's kind of less than I remember. Like because in my head. I'm like, his apartment's full of, of, uh, <laughs> of the drugs, but it's so many where he's just sitting there terrified, surrounded by it. Oh, my god! you know, god, he had so to
0: make uh, multiple trips to his trunk to get it all in the
1: apartment, <laughs> enough for that at least. I mean, let's—we got to run through just some of the the ple- simple pleasures of this movie because there's so many. I mean, I took so many notes rewatching it this time, and I knew we wouldn't be able to get to even like a third of them. But it's just no, right go for from- it. Yeah,
0: what's 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 a what's a good little uh, what's like something that's we should coin the term now. So you know, Easter eggs. So like I pointed uh-huh. out an Easter egg, I guess, of the Golden Fang oh. being in there. And or Easter eggs can be plot. I feel like Easter eggs can be um, references to other movies. What's like a term like Easter egg for just what you're saying? The simple joys of this movie. Should we just say simple joys, or should we? Is there a better term? <laughs> sure. a, so, so. a Cadbury? Simple a Cadbury?
1: <laughs> Cadbury egg. Yeah. I mean everything. Not only everything, I mean, this time I've always thought this the Josh Brolin performance is like maybe the best thing about the movie and one of the funniest, saddest things I've ever seen. Oh, can and I, I give you my hot that, take?
0: One of one of my hot takes. It's it's one of many. I think Josh Brolin's performance in this movie is head and shoulders above no Country's no country performance. Oh, totally. I totally agree. Okay, that's not. I mean, that he's hot great time.
1: in No Country for Old Man, in No Country for Old Men, but <laughs> Old it's man. like No country for old man. He's so great here. Everything he said from his intro, I mean, his introduction, another breaking of reality when he's on TV, (laughs) and everything
0: (laughs) he says, right on, and then he addresses Doc directly. Oh god. God. Did you see? Do you see later in the movie? This is one of my simple joys, and I'll stop hijacking your your segment here. But uh do you remember? Uh it's so funny. I was I was laughing out loud. Um when you they at some point in the movie it's after he says the whole this line is this part was so funny too these two things quickly but you probably imagine i have a lot of status up in romery homicide who could blame you for thinking that but the reality no cielo drive for bigfoot no tv movie rights for bigfoot or book deals even extra work is drying up <laughs> then you see him as an extra as a cop and if you and look Adam at him 12 in Adam 12 as a cop but do you notice his performance he's it's incredible he's blinking he seems so self conscious like he really seems like a first time like a a non-professional he's really bad yeah and it's like he's like looking at the camera and blinking it's so fucking funny so that's definitely a joy for me and that
1: also I mean that also ties into like the whole idea I mean you know it's very trendy to say a cab now but this movie certainly tapped into that whole idea I mean all of Pinterest (laughs) is but that cops are terrible and that you know in la they also want to be seen on screen and we're shown cops being good and here's a real corrupt cop who really just wants to be on television and it's this lie like given back to us from the lapd one of the most historically like corrupt and oppressive police departments
0: it's and and it's hilarious it's great it's so Uh, funny what are what are some things you have some of the notes you've taken some of the things you'd you'd want to point out? I mean, I
1: was going to say Brolin is hilarious, but every time I'm just surprised by how funny Benicio del Toro is. And the one scene they have together
0: is so funny. Uh you're going <laughs> to kick him? That's assault. Oh, it's so he's so good. I have I have to walk back something I said to you a criticism I had of this movie based on that moment alone is that so I said to you before that one thing that I felt had trouble with is how many stars are in this film, and then I'm real. I was real watching it again. I was just so invested in it. To me, the moments. I actually think the the actress who plays Jade and the actress who plays Cl- uh, Clancy, who are not who are, now I know Clancy that that woman was actually a, a porn star and an erotic actress, and then Jade was a newcomer. Both of them. Yeah. And both of them hang. They really do. But like Dinas, for example, seems like a non like he's his, in his amateur in a way it works because the character is so dumb. But to me, it was like, you, you, I think you need like Joaquin Phoenix, like love him or hate him. He's incredible. Same with Josh Brolin, same with Reese Weatherspoon, same with, um, I actually think Catherine uh, Watterson. I think it's one of her first roles but she's great in it too. Like, I do think you, once you recruit a certain caliber of actor, it seems like you can't, some people rise to the occasion, obviously some people like soccer, for example, you get better when you play with better players. Um, if you can get over that, that hurdle, that's why training's really important. But um, in general, you gotta, once you dip, once you get a certain caliber of actor, it's, it's going to make uh, things stick out more that aren't as good. I mean, I'm glad you pointed
1: pointed this out because, I mean, I do think the movie pulls it out off. Like, it shouldn't, but they're all so perfectly cast. And I do think that's what's so smart about having, like, the lead be this ingenue who, I mean, obviously her dad's famous, but I didn't know Katherine Larson from anything. And she's great. And, like, having her be the lead instead of, like, say, having Reese Witherspoon be... Like, it's kind of like...
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Having Reese Witherspoon, it's kind of like, yeah, you want to see the fucking reunion from the Johnny Cash movie? <laughs> only 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 kind of gonna get like slapping your hand away like only kind of gonna give that to you like she's in two scenes and kind of his girlfriend um but i will say denis looks great is funny in several scenes i think he's actively bad when they're pulled over in a way that's Mm -hmm. always like totally taken me out like not that charlie manson again like i don't think he's good and and you're so right everyone else like hong chow is jade so good when she's just listing off all the ways that bambi is into spotted spotted dick Dick. she's got she's got 24 albums spotted dick it's it's all dick all the time um but i yeah i think you're right go ahead
0: no go ahead you you go you go you're just about to what I i i just think yeah that's
1: that's a totally valid concern that this movie pulls off by everyone being so good i mean Oh my god! Benicio del Toro is so funny.
0: He's so um, good and locked in, and he's like, "You're gonna kick him? That's assault!" This is just so funny. And then uh, I well, love we've the scene. Plenty of- of crime on the high seas, <laughs> and they do, they do. Ironically, because of the Golden Fang, um, we have to talk about the Topanga Canyon scene. And here's gonna uh, the house scene because also when she says all that stuff about spotted dick, and uh, she's like, "Can I get a ride?" And then oh, Joaquin Phoenix's look where he's assessing. And then just nods. Just I wrote gets this down me. too. One of yeah. the funniest things. Mm, okay. It's yeah. so good. Okay. Here's my hot take. I'm ready. I can't wait for hot you. Take to time. I think you've already seen it. Probably. This is Owen Wilson's best performance. That is, that is a fiery take. Best performance. And I think his, his air of, his air about, as they say, possess mel- melancholy is not correct because that's what they say about Bigfoot. But his air of just, what did I have ri- written down here? My hot takes. Um, it's it's like I get proud of Owen Wilson because we, me, and you are both Owen Wilson stands, and we have a, I think a unique opinion on him because we we know he's a co writer for Wes Anderson, and that's how we got to start with Bottle Rocket. He's an incredibly well read, sensitive interesting guy who has had obviously trouble and dark moments. And I think he's one of the most under or misrepresented people or least understood people in Hollywood, like stars everyone just assumes he's like this happy go lucky, like stoner party animal type of guy, part of the frat pack. And he's like, I was just watching him go toe to toe, for lack of a better word, with Joaquin Phoenix in the Topanga Canyon scene. I'm like, he's a phenomenal actor. His wistful remorse is pitch perfect. It weirdly foreshadows the fact that his ex-girlfriend gave birth to a daughter in like 2018 that he's allegedly never met. Although Tanner did see him with a baby in a Malibu Malibu coffee shop. But Who knows? uh, We don't know whose baby that is. But it's like all those scenes in the master in the master shots are just so good. And he just is like, so believable as this guy. And I feel like he's in all these Wes Anderson movies. Right. And Wes Anderson, I think here's the difference to me between the, these two filmmakers. I like Wes Anderson more. I think Paul Thomas Anderson is better because Paul Thomas Anderson is a highly technical filmmaker as well. I think Wes Anderson as amazing of the cast he has sometimes. And I love so many of his films as we talked about last week. I don't know if it's always set up for to have the same type of moments. Like actors catching lightning in a bottle. I think it's much more like, as you say, the hermetically sealed world, right? It's and, a very arch delivery. Very, yeah. yes. But then PTA has a very similar thing. He's very technical, but it's set up. I feel like for the actors to, to like, to hit a home run, And I think Owen Wilson is that's the best I feel like I've seen him use. We have his humor, we have his 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 the way he speaks, and he he he's just so good in this movie to me. Yeah, I mean
1: he it is like you said, perfect use of him. He's like so perfectly deployed, and it's maybe the best example of like two uh, I remember hearing. I mean, I was so into like the buildup to the casting news of this movie and I'm like, oh, Owen Wilson's playing the surf sax player. That's almost too good. You know, like <laughs> distractingly apt. But he's so, especially in the Topanga Canyon scene because he's got the high status where, you know, he has from imprim- like Doc checked out stuff mm-hmm. for him, but Doc is coming into his home. Owen Wilson clearly knows more than Doc about whatever's going on with Vigilant California. And yeah you're right because he's so funny he looks the part and he's very sad and it it totally plays and he even makes doc sad when he describes Mm -hmm. the little kid blues um and i do think of his delivery of so you're asking me whose side am i on
0: all the time (laughs) uh the metaphor for the for the car and he immediately realizes what he's talking about and he's like yeah and he it's all street legal and then (laughs) then, you know he gets
1: a, a delivery that is like out of a Wes Anderson movie, out of a, I should say, a Wes Anderson Owen Wilson movie, when he picks him up and he says, You're one dangerous hombre,
0: but I it totally that.
1: works <laughs> and fits in.
0: Um, I just got a call from Perk Stodger. Perk Stodger just called me personally. <laughs> <It's> just, <laughs> he's so funny. Like he, I just think he's pitch perfect in this movie. I can't think of a, I haven't seen his entire filmography. I can't name a, a, a better performance than this at a, at a. And OML it's Center. so
1: sweet at the end. You don't even really see Jenna Malone uh, as Hope, but you hear mm-hmm. her laugh off screen after Doc's delivered him back to her. And it's,
0: it's so moving. It's really moving. You see her jumping in the window too. Oh, that's um, great. and yeah so that's that's my hot take um have I, have I convinced you can you go can you can you i don't know if i can take? i don't know if i can
1: co-sign it just
0: because he's
1: in so little of the movie you know i don't know what my favorite Owen wilson performance would be
0: i guess it would have to be he's not a lead in this either but it's got to be royal tenenbaums uh he's <laughs> good in royal tenenbaums i don't think he's i think he's really entertaining i think his character is interesting in that movie like one of the best parts of that movie is when we find out that he's been sending his report cards to Etheline ten- Tenenbaum since he was a kid because he wants clearly wants to be a Tenenbaum. But um... there are
1: just several several line deliveries in that movie, whether it's Wildcat or <laughs> so. One presupposes that uh, maybe that General did. Guster died in the Battle of Big or, when <laughs> this novel presupposes maybe he didn't. <laughs> but no, no, no. I, I mean, I guess maybe it'd be Bottle Rocket that most
0: the other I movie think, that is so funny and also ties in his sadness so well. I mean, that's an interesting point to say he's not in the movie that much. I think that's kind of that's a little bit of of winning on a technicality in a way, because I think it's about impact. Right, right, right. And I think the impact because I think D- Dignan is hilarious. I think that's the only other performance that comes to mind being I think Eli Cash is really entertaining as well. I'm not there to me. Eli Cash and um and Dignan are amazing characters who are not as dynamic to me. Like, I feel like this, I got all of the things I want out of Owen Wilson. Like, the Burke Sodger just called me personally, you're a bad hombre, like cracks me up, but then he's like, doesn't matter there's no way I could ever go back to him. And it's like, I don't know. We don't have to spend too much time. And we might spend more time on this than Owen Wilson's actually in the movie, but also the Polaroids of him doing the drugs. Really, great, really, it's- re- really. Mo- it's so funny. And also so sad.
1: The shot, the Polaroid of him laughing while he's tying off his arm. in that <laughs> great, beautiful. I mean, that's a scene. God. I, so I was born in the South Bay and lived there as a kid. And I'm always like returning to my memories of, of, of the light there and I we I live in Los Angeles so I visited occasionally but that scene when Doc visits Hope Harlingen hilarious scene because we get the famous him screaming reaction to the <laughs> photo of their baby but like the morning light how nice mm-hmm. she is you know coffee and cookies Doc just kind of mm-hmm. taking all in and going mm-hmm mm. is funny her, but also her teeth.
0: So sweet. her teeth are chompers yeah it's yeah. a great scene um yeah, so that's that, that that's a hot take I have. Um, Great take. Another another thing I wanted to bring to your attention because I hadn't heard the term till you said it in um, our first episode of doubling. I actually think, and I don't know if I'm using this right, so I want your opinion. But I actually do think there's some doubling. It might just be narrative thread and essentially just weaving um, Bigfoot and Doc together. But um, when the monologue, or not the monologue, when he's talking to Doc in the um, the the getting pancakes you know and he said the thing i already read and he says eventually like dentists on trampolines god help us all which is yeah it's so funny but then doc i feel like has a very because swordledge teases it out of him it's an amazing scene that i don't even remember seeing before where i was really moved by it where Sortilage is like kind of like I don't. Know, it just just getting him just really being like, "What's going on?" He's like, "I'm working myself into a brain freeze here," and he's clearly. And she's like, "Well, what's going to keep you up at night?" Like, try to, to reframe okay. her question, and he's like, "Little kid blues saxophone players," like it felt very similar to me to him saying, "Dentists on trampolines." It's like they're both. Pes- oh, that's they're, good. They're in it together now, whether they like it or not. Um, I thought it was, that was kind of cementing their partnership in a way, those two, those, the quick quips there. Yeah. I mean, I think you're, you're so
1: right. That I think the movie very intentionally doubles them and we get, you know, the terrific last scene, which to me, I I put this in our notes. uh, It's funny. I mean, it's a hilarious scene with several crazy ideas in it, but it always, you know, coming out right after the master, it played to me like, the same version of the slow boat to China scene. And I mean, the master is almost explicitly about two doubles, two sides of the same mm. coin, you know, in um, Philip Seymour Hoffman and Walking Phoenix characters. And there's that last scene where it's just trading close ups as they sit across from each other. And Philip Seymour Hoffman loves this man and scenes of this song, and it's so weird. But here we have Bigfoot stomping through his door, eating, eating his weed as Doc cries. And then the brilliant thing that couldn't be more doubled is they both say the same thing for like three sentences and are visibly freaked out by it. Are they the same person? I mean that's the thing, Doc. You know he looks down on the only thing he respects about about the police are are their affinity for partners. And yet, mm-hmm. you know he has to operate in the same world as them for his job. You know he shoots a guy, and mm-hmm. is he that different? Well, that's also different than Doc. I don't know.
0: Well, that's an interesting point. To uh, I feel like maybe we should end on an inherent vice here, and then talk a little about PTX. I think we've been talking for like two hours, and I would love to yeah, it's talk PTX. PTA before. I could talk about this movie all day, but I know you have something in half in 28 minutes. So I want to leave that time for PTA. Really quick. One last thing. We got to just mention the Martin Short scene while we're oh talking about people. He's, he's So it's a best it, it's, a, it's an amazing cameo. I mean,
1: one of the best drugs like, you know, the simplicity to the you know, we talked about how maybe it's annoying in movies, the idea of drug use, but just the <laughs> speeding up when they're all just doing the cocaine, <laughs> taking a little for the road is so fun and manic and the score the weird johnny greenwood score and how it builds up to him walking back in and then Mm -hmm. the classic
0: Dina's holding the steering wheel i don't know how to drive well i feel like the that scene for martin short was i really started liking him after that because him and steve martin i met them it turned not in real life but in like terms of my awareness of them like when they were already kind of old men who are nice and there weren't like these cutting edge like Steve Martin was like an innovative stand up performer. That's how he, you know what I mean. And then he did all had an amazing career in movies. And I kind of met him as like, uh, um, bringing Everybody down the house. Yeah, bringing down the house with Queen LaDiva, which just has to have aged horribly. But Martin Short is so funny in that part when he's just like, I might just join you for a moment, and he like <laughs> does the bump, and it's just the way he's talking is insane. And then when they're in the car, and he's like. I'm oh gonna have God. a heart attack. I'm I'm gonna my heart is going crazy right now. Like, Pay no attention to that bag. It'll only make you paranoid. Oh, it, he's so good and it really reinvented him as a comedic actor to me. Like, not that my yeah, opinion of Martin Short matters, but it really no is no so totally. Good. But he's tapping into this
1: demonic energy that's like early in the movie Clifford, where he plays a mm-hmm. child. I don't know if you've seen that movie. It's so weird and funny. And it's him against Charles Grodin, who's a genius, maybe the funniest actor ever to me. And Martin Short, he's just a kid. Like, it's not like he's a kid who looks like an adult. He's like a 40-year-old man playing an eight-year-old who's a, <laughs> a demon. And it's so funny. And that's like the way his line delivery, think of it constantly. When Dina says, oh, it's groovy to be to be insane. Martin
0: Short goes, it's not groovy to be insane. <laughs> in Jopana here anyway. has been institutionalized for it. Um one thing I want to just go back to quickly before PTA is that so the, the big difference in the movie and book um, is the ending doc and Shasta are, are conceivably back together I love it because it's not like you know it's not like wedding bells or anything you know that this relationship might not last or really take off because you can't just you can't just act like that what they went through is. There's going to be some trauma. There's going to be some fallout for sure. But it is it is really sweet to think of them driving. I also got taxi driver scenes when they look at just the mirror. Oh, um, yeah. Oh. So good. But um, Shasta in the book kind of says what you just said uh, maybe five minutes ago about Doc operating in the same world the end of the book, the book ends with him driving alone. And he's, he's kind of stewing because Shasta is like, you think you're like not a cop and you're like this fun beatnik PI, like solving cases, not even getting money. Like you are this, you are, you are the same. You're synonymous with, with, with that to me at this point, like kind of like, she's kind of like, I think doc saves her to bring her back to hippie And then she ultimately, seems to have this epiphany that doc isn't that anymore cuz doc has changed you know yeah oh i mean well said
1: and that's why i think the ending of the movie is so it's different but also so they're in the car it's totally abstract by fog the marine layer i don't know mm. but y- you know you don't even see outside of the car and she they're together even though this doesn't mean they're back together is the quote she mm-hmm. talks about Sword Liege and then gets the same mournful look that she has after they have sex. And then he looks in the rearview mirror and sees something, a light, and gets a smile on his face. And it's like, is he happy that you're here? Is that has he left the 60s behind? Is that what he's seeing in the rearview? And he's happy with that. And mm-hmm. she's sad, you know? Like, is he and he's leaving down like behind all of his countercultural bona fides? Um I don't know. It's one of those endlessly interesting endings, just like Taxi Driver, like you said, where he adjusts the mirror and what does he see? Um, mm-hmm. And it's so interesting to depart there where like outside of like some excisions and like condensing things, it, the book, the movie doesn't depart from the book in that many ways. Um, which no, I agree. A lot more fascinating.
0: Yeah, I think it I think it it just packages up the most interesting, sexiest, glamorous, weirdest, mysterious parts in a way that's I saw a comment on YouTube under one of the trailers that was like the best movie you've never heard of is what it said and I'm like that's the <laughs> that's the greatest um Summation for me, this movie is the best movie that you've never heard of. It's kind of like Greenberg in that way. Is that, yeah, and I think more people have come
1: to it because it's the kind of movie that people saw on the first glance and like, oh, that's not one of his best movies and it was confusing and too long. But then I feel like I see more people returning to it and being like, wait a minute, this is one of his best movies, you know?
0: Um, slowly, yeah, I I hope they don't because I hope we can still be cool. I would like Um, to keep it, yeah. Um, so Inherent Vice is my favorite Paul Thomas Anderson movie. I think the best movie is The Master that he's made. The Master is like watch once a, once a decade type of movie, I think, though. Um, well but But uh, it's, uh, The Master is amazing. I, I have to put it in my top three because it is because it is so impressive and such a haunting story that I guess was also inspired by Pinchon in a way. But um, Inherent Vice is my favorite PTA movie. Uh, is it yours as well? You know, I was...
1: I don't know. It's one of those things that we're not on like Wes Anderson where it's like whatever I've seen last. I think it is. It's either this or the master, like you're saying. And then the other one would be Phantom Thread. And those are the, I mean, that run to me is just so fascinating. And like, he found a style that was no longer iterative of past, like other people's styles, like his other movies were. Um, And, but I I would say inherent advice. I mean, I have, yeah, certain personal connections with like the South Bay stuff, the genre Mm -hmm. of it. Um either that or the master, definitely.
0: Okay, yeah. Um, I I think I agree. So it's like I think it's it's inherent vice, the master. I would I would replace um Phantom Thread with There Will Be Blood. Uh I love There Will Be Blood. I think that There Will it, Be Blood is actually hilarious.
1: <laughs> so funny. I think all of his movies are funny. There will be Blood and The Master. There he will gets laughed.
0: Daniel Day Lewis is so funny. He's he has like a Larry David. Um, I swear if you rewatch uh There'll be Blood with like curb in your head, you can see he just doesn't suffer. He you see him like his eyes bulge when people break some sort of social cue. That's just like it's I, so I think funny. I saw it was god, it was probably a fucking tweet or something. I saw
1: something recently pointing out the scene where he's with his who he thinks is his brother at the beach and just like laying out his worldview. Uh and then his brother who doesn't even know him is just like ha totally man <laughs> really he's just
0: like probably terrified pretending to be his family member it's like god who the yeah it's this guy you must uh, really want want cash to pretend to be with that like i he's such a daniel plainville so terrifying but yeah that's i love those movies i love pta i came to him later i think he's kind of like the classic film school fanboy everyone everyone adores him but uh who likes movies, but I just think he's undeniable. Um, He's just, I think he's maybe his filmography. It's so tough to say, because when we talk about like a Woody Allen, who's got, you know, oodles and oodles of movies, but PTA is a chameleon. Every movie is distinctly his style somehow, but it's about the completely different subject matter and has some tonal shared ground, but really doesn't. It's just, I, I mean, I stand in awe of the man's filmography. I absolutely love it yeah i i
1: completely agree yeah and i guess we we should you mentioned it but uh so much of v is in the master you know from all the navy stuff i think in the script at one point there was even a sequence where freddie quell goes to new york and uh, hunts alligators in the sewers which is right out of <laughs> really v. and also i just feel like i mean i think Pinchon is easily probably the best namer of characters mm-hmm. i've ever read and you know you get benny profane and v a perfect name but it sounds like freddie quell to me you know oh as a similar like, ring to a it. simple name and then a word that like ties into this character i, I don't know i think that's interesting
0: yeah freddie quell is a great name lancaster dodd is great as well philip seymour hoffman's performance in that movie is is did he win an oscar for it i don't think he did no, no, no. So The Master was kind of, it was
1: like kind of an Oscar disappointment because that was seen as, you know, as follow up to There Will Be Blood, which is this huge Oscar movie. And The Master, well admired, kind of confounded people on release. The, all three of the leads were... Uh, were nominated for oscars and acting but he wasn't mm-hmm. nominated for writing or directing so philip Seymour hoppin was nominated i believe in supporting actor which is category fraud philip or uh, <laughs> joaquin phoenix lead actor then amy adams lead actress and then okay. weirdly even though inherent vice is kind of worstly received paul thomas anderson did get a screenwriting nomination for it and to me that was kind of like this is technically an adapted screenplay and it's not the award isn't for best adaptation like active adaptation mm-hmm. but it is like kind of like well you adapted the unadaptable book here you go <laughs> <That's how
0: laughs> <I thought. laughs> the the unadaptable writer um i think it's a really real i think it's right up there for um we, we're choosing it because we love it but i th- I do think it, this is right up there for one of the best adaptations i really oh, yeah it's incredible it's so good uh yeah I, I feel like yeah i'm a little hungry and uh a, a little a okay. little um days but i i i God, we don't have any, have many opportunities to talk about PTA. I know. What else can we, what, what else can we talk unfair.
1: about? Well, when we saw Licorice Pizza, we, uh, it was one of the opening nights day after Thanksgiving at the, uh, the Westwood theater that it's screened at uh, on 70 millimeter. And, um, we didn't know anyone was supposed to be there. And I saw in the lobby, I was waiting for the bathroom and I turned around and I just saw Paul Thomas Anderson and Maya Rudolph sitting on a bench. And I was like, Oh my God, look away. And then I, I, I texted the group of people. And that was one of them that, uh, that they were here and like seconds later matt was standing next to me having ran out from the theater <laughs> ready ready to see our hero
0: well i knew i was already on my way out of la and i really wanted to get my peepers on that pta before i did yeah, yeah um, but uh he looked so normal with his wife i made eye contact with them both they and then i looked away it was like full like rut row <laughs> um, but glad I, glad I got them. Glad I didn't say anything to them, but then I even respect the two things that made me respect him more that night. He, he, he unexpectedly spoke. He got up and just said, seven 15, what's up? And everyone disoriented, looked to the front of the, st- the, the theater and realized it was Paul Thomas Anderson in the flesh. He said he had two requests for us to turn off our phones because he, he guaranteed they would be there when, when the movie was over in our pockets and to clean up our trash because there was another uh, sh- uh, Showing shortly thereafter And that made me respect him Because it's like yeah people we, we're, we gotta be off our phones And you gotta clean up after yourself I have to say I think you're a bad person if you litter <laughs> I, I go that far I think you're a bad person if you litter um, And then secondly The group we were with was Tanner's Sister and then Uh, I think everyone else was female but me and they all I don't know if your sister was it all the rest of them were just like god he's so hot and I'm like yeah yeah, definitely and I was like you know I'm a straight man I I, uh, Kinsey scale um, I feel like I can only really figure out who's like who the who the home runs are you know Um, right right it's not hard to realize that like I don't know Chris Hemsworth is hot but then like I didn't realize like PTA a hero of mine is like you know, people think he's he's hot as hell, and I was like, hell yeah.
1: Yeah, there's nothing better than realizing that about someone you admire. Uh, real quick, I only doing this because you uh, put it in the notes, and we can cut it out if we want to. But the other time I saw him was introducing this movie at AFI Fest in 2014. Uh, I had first moved, I had just moved to LA, and I <laughs> was e, AFI Fest was free then but it's the kind of thing where you sign up for tickets online and then have to get there they like oversell it so you have to get there early and wait in a long line and Inherit had already premiered at the New York Film Festival I believe but it was playing there and I was like I'm, I'm getting in I moved to LA this is why I'm seeing it a month early <laughs> <laughs> waited in line like three hours uh, my long distance girlfriend was in town visiting me had no real interest in Paul Thomas Anderson of the film but I was like we're going to this very rudely it's a 22 year old <laughs> 23 no, it's, not, it's not rude to advocate for yourself. No, and I as think long as long ended- as you don't like, you know, hit something. Yeah. Well, <laughs> and I think she ended up liking it because well, okay, so we got in, got bad seats in the Egyptian theater, and he introduced it. And I think maybe Hong Chow and Catherine Watterson were there. He seemed a little drunk in a fun way. It was really cute. Um then uh <laughs> my girlfriend and I broke up because long distance relationships are hard. And not long after, she cut all her hair off. God, maybe i shouldn't be sharing this but it is funny. no just don't Po-po-po- name her <laughs> it won't name her she's a great person uh posted it on instagram uh with short hair and then captioned it change your hair change your life which is of course a quote from this movie um <laughs> i she thought was, oh, she I didn't guess. like the
0: movie
1: i thought she didn't <laughs> like the movie I don't think she loved it. She was certainly confounded by it, which is why I was like, is this about me? I mean, obviously, you know, <laughs> that stereotype people get haircuts after breakups, whatever, which I totally get. Um, but I was just so confused by it. Maybe someday I'll ask her about
0: it. Probably not. God, that is so funny. I just is the type of, yeah, it's like, it just gets your attention. It's like, you just, I've been, I've probably done that post, not that in that same tone, but like being like, you make some post that inadvertently is like signaling messages to, um, you uh to a person you know right like dog, right. It's dog forward, so, yeah. yeah you're not saying that you miss tanner drop, but you are dog whistling that he'll see this post and maybe text you be like oh inherent here um i have a tie-in with something from this as well to an ex of mine and then um ex olds, ex-old lady i think i also have one final point just to bring it for anyone who's still here to uh listening to the very end of this as well, but I had a girlfriend. So do you remember, this is goofy. Actually you grew up completely in a different spot than me, but uh when I was, we grew up, you know, the same time you're, well, you know, like you were born in 90 or 91? 91, 91, not born 92. So kids are the same, the same ilk, but you grew up only 92. 90s. Kids will get
1: this reference.
0: Only 90 kids. No, uh only 90 kids in the whole country will get it. <laughs> and you could be one of them. Um <laughs> But yoga pants became a thing when we were in high school. Do you, um, did, was that the case that you, you're, I concur maybe, maybe early college more for me, I feel like, but yes, roughly exactly. So it be, kind of became this trend of girls wearing baggy or usually baggy t-shirts and yoga pants. And I remember, and this is this is really goofy, but it, it, um, it makes me think of inherent vice now, but, uh, this memory is that my girlfriend in high school at the time who, I who I dated and uh, like my freshman and sophomore year, we were like, it was like girls wore yoga pants. And obviously as a straight man, I was like seeing it like, Oh, you zoinks, you know, whatever. But then she was kind of yeah. like, it's so like weird that girls do that. Just showing off their asses. Like, you know, like just wear a tight pair of jeans. You're really going to wear like a skin tight thing. And I was totally like, yeah. And then like we broke up um, and then, you know, shortly thereafter, I see her wearing yoga pants. And I'm just laughing being like, uh, when now, and she's like, she walks in looking like she swore she'd never look. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Great tie. in I did not
1: expect that to come back to in her advice.
0: Uh, this does come back to in her advice. Final thing, Tanner. Cause I thought, I uh, just, and then I want to hear your final thoughts. Um, you know, as well, when you said that you, you loved how effective the shot was when he's through the, the, the binoculars, binoculars. Is that pre? Because I is that pre or post him getting the the um the postcard? Pre, pre. I also took that scene. That's what I thought, and I also took that scene of he's sending the karmic thermal out to her to reach back out to him. Great, as well. Like that's another like layer of ab- abstraction that I've I've I'm projecting onto that scene. But I think again, this is why. This film, I just could talk about forever.
1: It's, God, you're so right. I mean, one final, final thing. God, this is so long. Um, the, uh, <laughs> it's longer
0: than the, the we did though.
1: Because we didn't mention the postcard scene, which is, I think, so casually one of his... Great set pieces where you have the flashback to them calling a number, going to the address to get weed. And then, you know, he, if the shot that follows her in the rain all the way down, then tracks back to catch him and he he pulls her back into him walking on the now totally sunlit, blown out L.A. day. But one funny thing, uh, this is maybe too much and too pinch on uh, conspiracy-wise. <laughs> I once Googled the address uh, that, that they get, which is somewhere on Sunset Boulevard, right near the Scientology Center. Basically, the Golden Fang, this institute that seems to be running everything, is where the Scientology Center is now on Sunset Boulevard and i was oh, interested. Like, that's hilarious and i don't know i actually didn't check if that's in the book but i mean to me it's like well paul thompson just came off making you know kind the master. of a anthology movie in the yeah.
0: master um maybe well, it's just an easter egg for him for us to for the for the the sleuths to figure yeah. out i would be surprised if he threw it in there to have a connection to it's so dumb but yeah like uh i one of the scenes in my film ghosted I, I the character it's played by me I say clears throat and then I was like yeah. there's a moment where we have to get in the new script we wrote together that we have to get a, someone's attention I'm like can we just say clears throat because, it's, <laughs> because it, it connects to something I made I wonder if that's a subtle wink at, 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 at uh, the master just
1: right right universe. or it's just like a great idea like just the idea of a building like that being there. And I also just love the shot of the building. It's a great visual mm-hmm. effect shot in a movie that you don't think of that way, but the way he cranes his neck up and mm-hmm. we follow and you can't can't even fit in frame. Really good.
0: And that just scene in general. Yeah. It's just ugh. It's
1: so, so Neil annoying. Young. Uh, the, the music in this movie, so smart in how there are, you know, two Neil Young songs, which is kind of ballsy to just repeat yourself. Uh <laughs> Harvest and Journey Through the Past. Um and that ties into the 70s. But there's so many songs from earlier. And it's just like, yeah, in the 70s, like now, I don't listen to a lot of movies from the twenty from 2022, like I do. But I also listen to movie music from like the 70s. And in the 70s, you probably heard songs from like the 50s and 60s. And just not giving you what you expect with these needle drops from the opening music. Can, mm-hmm. the German band, like the Krautrock, whatever, they have nothing to do with this era. And yet the opening song, Vitamin C, like sets the t- the table for the menace of the movie so well and it's just like brilliant
0: mm-hmm. and then
1: having there's the mini riperton song by rudolph's mom that's fun just a great song
0: yeah God, I, I, I'm still going on karmic thermals myself to talk about more of what you just said, but I feel like it at, uh, we should probably, uh, call it, it. but Hey, this was great. I love this book. I love this movie. I'm glad that you've been my co-conspirator with, with a, this podcast, but I really feel like this specific work in general. Yeah. Thank you, man. You too. This is great. So um, you're recording, I'm recording. let's let's uh, touch base. Also if you want to write any of the uh, the fake ad the advertising, copy, um, I'm totally enjoying doing that, it. but I don't want I don't want uh, um, have a monopoly on that either.
1: And maybe we get a Voorhees and Kruger law firm. What's <laughs> uh, what's wait? Oh, Jason and uh, so that right. in the movie that's uh, uh, Crocker Fenway works for Voorhees Kruger, which oh is obviously God. a joke. but uh, I'm saying maybe that, they could be the the ass.
0: Oh, I was going to say that. Uh, there's also S- S- uh, Sancho Slimax. How do you say his last name? Oh, Smilax? Or whatever. I don't even know. Similax, I don't know. There's the Crescalodon. There's uh, um, P- pictures by Birch. Yeah. Um, the Yul Krakatore. There's just so many different things you could talk, you could make a fake ad for this movie. Anywho, Tanner, great to see you, buddy. Peace. Talk soon, man. Bye.